Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. Daniel McCarthy, and this is the Story of Nowhere podcast. I want to thank everyone for tuning in today, and for tuning in last time for episode 20, The Doomsday Device. That one was a long time in the making, and I think that that shows, because it was a pretty long episode. Even still, despite the length of the thing, there's still so much left to say on the subjects of cybernetics, technocracy, transhumanism, and all that. In fact, I recently listened back to the show, just to make sure that I didn't screw anything up, and the whole time I could only think of stuff that I could have added. But that is not why we are gathered here today. For you today, I have something a bit different from the usual. This episode is going to get into some news. The necessary preconditions for current events are necessarily contained in the events of the past. Current events come out of past events. The news comes out of history. It's for this reason that I tend to focus on history over the news. Absent the study of history, the news seems to just arise from a miasma of senselessness. I prefer not to break my brain over one such current event, but rather... I seek to identify the causal patterns and forms which shape all current events. There is far superior utility in finding the skeleton key which opens all doors than there is in picking each lock which bars the way forward. Consider also the problems of propaganda, misinformation, and disinformation in the news, what we now know as fake news. Consider the peculiar situation that civilized society has imposed upon itself over the past century of mass communication technologies. For generations now, the majority of first world people have taken for granted that the purveyors of the news are honest, objective, and impartial brokers, having scarcely paid heed to the fact that virtually all of their news brokers are effectively members of a current event and communications cartel, largely controlled by select corporate interests and influenced by the very governments they're supposed to be monitoring. But none of this negates the necessity of parsing through the propaganda and actually analyzing the news. Left unchecked, Today's fake news hardens into tomorrow's fake history. The propaganda becomes the lasting myth. So, with this in mind, I have for you today a fairly in-depth discussion on some more or less current events. This is a roundtable discussion featuring James Jordan, Brett Vinat, Tony Myers, and myself on the Grand Theft World podcast. Recorded on January 30th, 2022. Now, obviously, given that date, you know that this talk precedes the most pressing current event, the whole Russia-Ukraine, holy crap is this World War III fiasco, 
that really kicked off on February 24th, 2022. In what you're about to hear, we discuss the COVID situation as it stood at the time, touching on the Canadian trucker protest, the appearance of Barry Weiss on Real Time with Bill Maher, the ending of lockdowns in Britain, and Fauci's role in the National Institute of Allergies and Infectious Diseases. Even though these issues and the larger COVID narrative have seemingly taken a back seat in light of the recent developments in Eastern Europe, these stories are still very much with us and remain important points in domestic policy, even as the focus has now shifted to foreign policy. Also, it bears mentioning that the same people who were behind crafting the COVID narrative are now the same people behind crafting this new narrative regarding Russia and Ukraine and all that. And the same people and the same organizations that have spent the past year, two years, censoring and excoriating anyone who dared suggest that vaccines might not be 100% effective, or that lockdowns were maybe a bad idea, or that the virus might have been man-made, are now the same people and the same organizations who will censor and excoriate anyone who wants to avoid a hot nuclear World War III. You're just a Putin sympathizer. Blech. Anyway, I hope that you find this lengthy discussion from the end of January as enlightening and as enriching as I found it. I think in many ways it will reveal the various modern manifestations of the utopian impulse which I've spent the past 20 episodes of this podcast breaking down historically. If you do find it useful, I encourage you to listen to the rest of this episode of the Grand Theft World podcast. This segment, which I'm about to play for you, is in the neighborhood of three hours long, and yet it only makes up one portion of the show. The whole episode is something like seven hours long, and that's pretty much par for the course for the Grand Theft World podcast. So you're going to hear all of the proper introductions and plugs during the actual discussion, so I won't repeat that stuff here. Let's just dive right into it. Here is my appearance with James Jordan, Brett Vinat, and Tony Myers on the Grand Theft World Podcast, number 65, Spotify Seppuku. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Grand Theft World Podcast. I am your host and navigator, Tony Myers. We have a very special episode for you tonight. I have a, some very good friends of mine joining me, intelligent, cogent individuals that speak with diffidence and parhesia. Uh, joining me for a roundtable. That'll be quite entertaining. And I'm hoping to emulate or simulate sort of the conversations that you would have with friends or family, especially around these complex topics that are being presented to us in our world today. Tonight's uh, episode is called Spotify Seppuku. 
uh, thanks to Neil Young and the continual issue of Joe Rogan breaking the internet. Oh, and by the way, today's podcast is being done on January 30th, 2022. Uh, we have a couple, we have a plethora of clips we're going to get to tonight. First couple of hours, like I said, is going to be a round table. We're going to discuss, we're going to show clips as we normally do, but then we're going to have more of a, a general discussion around those clips and commentary. And I hope to, uh, elucidate some uh, uh, sort of uh, different ideas presented by different individuals, how they see things in regards to what's going on and what's being presented in those clips. Then about midnight, we're going to step away from that. I'm going to finish out the show solo and we're going to go into the rest of the show card just because it's so voluminous. I want to expedite making sure we get to some of the major clips from this past week. And one of those being Academy of Ideas did a very fascinating uh, video talking about sort of the rise of authoritarianism uh, in juxtaposition to sort of cowardice. And so kind of getting into the psychology of why uh, sort of the congruent relationship, the proportional relationship, if you will, between cowardice and tyranny. Then we have uh, Stephen Crowder uh, making a little bit of fun of the Barry Weiss situation on Bill Maher, you know, speaking a little bit of too much candor potentially. Uh, Barry Weiss, that is, who sort of sees herself as sort of a classical liberal, I believe. We'll get into that. And also, Brett and Heather discusses why, or they believe, that Fauci seems to be unfireable, if you will. Why can't Fauci be fired? You know, what type of power does he really wield? And especially through the NIAID. So it'll be interesting to get into those topics tonight. And we have a, a, a number of clips. We have Aaron uh, and Melissa Dykes getting into... Uh, the whole concept of a post-work society, and and many, many others. So without further ado, we're going to start tonight's podcast, as we always do, with Luke Rudowski from We Are Change. And let's go ahead and get to that first clip. What a moment in Canadian history here at Parliament Hill. I love you, Canada! The revolution will not be televised, but it will be moderately distributed on YouTube, depending on how far we could beat the AI algorithm that decides how many people see this video in the general public. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. This is Lukradowski here of WeAreChange.org, and we have a lot of very important, crazy news to get into today, as of course, the truckers have arrived to Ottawa. We're going to be talking about that, the significant ramifications of this, the movements that have been inspired by this, along, of course, with all the latest news, all here on this independent media broadcast. And there's so much to get into. We're just going to jump right into it, as, of course, I think what we're seeing right now could be explained by Newton's third law, that for every action, there's an equal reaction. And when you have so many people demanding freedom and liberty, that's a direct response from politicians taking it away from them. And let's be honest, there have been a lot of politicians emboldened and fervently fighting to get rid of your personal liberties, eliminating any kind of autonomy without, of course, you being dependent on the state. This, to me, is perfectly exemplified by the latest move announced by Joe Biden, the president of the United States, that says he's going to be regulating Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies because, quote, it's a matter of national security, even though cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin essentially act like digital cash. Is he going to be banning cash in the matter of national security next? Well, who knows? But very interestingly, in response to this, there are a lot of states, including Arizona, 
that just introduced a bill that is trying to make Bitcoin legal tender in their state, standing up for people's financial future and ability to move away from the criminal Federal Reserve banking system. A lot of states pushing back against Biden, against this very unpopular policy that he is set to implement, as many states are making a very strong stance against it. In New Zealand, the government there is so draconian that their citizens are literally looking towards the Taliban for help. And I'm not just saying that in a facetious way. This is the crazy story of Charlotte Bellis, who is a pregnant New Zealand journalist that has been stranded because of New Zealand's insane totalitarian Orwellian quarantine policies that have created a backlog and prevented many people from going home, including this pregnant journalist, leaving her diplomatically stranded. She was a journalist, so she had visas to stay in the Afghanistan, one of the few places in the world where she could legally stay, this journalist reached out to a senior Taliban contact, asked them for permission if she could return in Afghanistan, which she was forced to return to because the government of New Zealand rejected 59 documents and rejected her application for an emergency return to her home country. Absolutely insane story highlighting how bonkers Many countries that have proclaimed themselves to be democracies who, according to the eyes of this New Zealand journalist, are worse off than the Taliban. And this kind of insanity is not just in New Zealand. It's also in horrible, disgusting states like New Jersey that just sentenced Ian Smith, a gym owner, for the criminal act of keeping his gym open during lockdowns. He got one year of probation, one year too many, for the crime of trying to keep people fit and healthy. Ian Smith did nothing wrong. The state of New Jersey should already be even more ashamed of itself than it already is. There's a reason when I was in New York City, we always called it Dirty Jersey. And here in the United States, we can only expect more government, more bureaucracy. As of course, the noted UK speed camera nightmare is coming to the United States all under a plan of Pete Buttigieg that is planning to put up money-generating speed cameras all throughout the United States, all in the name of generating revenue for the state. As, of course, there's even some preliminary data suggesting that these cameras actually create more car accidents, and they are widely despised by the general public, with even the right and the left both opposing them, since, of course, this is not only a government overreach, but also will be financing and funding funding many police forces all throughout the United States. And with Americans just being constantly pushed with more and more bureaucracy, nonsense, bullcrap, when will we push back like Canada is? Well, I don't know, but we got new Apple emojis that show a pregnant man. So uh, there's that. Also, if you're a dude, you got you to gotta watch out now because uh, allegedly you could get pregnant at any moment. Now, uh, that's going to make me change a lot of personal decisions that I've been making. Now, I'm not no expert or genius, but this is allegedly real-life video coming out of the Canadian Parliament right now that uh, we cannot independently verify. We can't have anyone freak out out there, okay? We've got to keep our composure. We've come too far. There's too much to lose. We've got to just keep our composure. We can't have anyone freak out. 
And uh, with the way things are going, that wouldn't be surprising for me if that was actually happening, as, of course, there's a major convoy. There's been a mass mobilization. Some people say a mass awakening of individuals in Canada saying enough is enough of the lockdowns, of the mandates, of the restrictions, of the government trying to control every aspect of my life. And there's a number of truckers now that are fighting and standing up for people's personal freedom. Truckers are, of course, the backbone of any society. They are the reason why we have food on our tables and they literally act like the bloodline for any kind of society that is dependent on them to create the current existence that we are in. Now, throughout the week, we have been covering this convoy as it has been growing, gaining more support, raising millions of dollars for the upcoming legal battles that, of course, they're going to be going through when it comes to challenging the Canadian state and their track trace and database almost akin to a social credit score system that they have currently implemented in that country. The system essentially rewards people who comply with the whims of the state and punishes those who do not. Now, this has been a very significant development since, of course, this movement seems very organic, seems very natural. It has come out of nowhere and it has garnered large swells of support from, of course, the general public and people in the working class. And now they have finally reached Ottawa, and you could see this mass mobilization of all the truckers, of all the people that even in these cold, frigid, frigid weathers have, co have come together and, and told the government, the state, that, of course, they are unhappy with everything that they are doing and implementing against them. What's the response by the government in this situation? Did they say, hey, let's let's listen to these people. Let's see what they want. This is a huge swell of people coming together demanding that our government act differently. What can we do better to serve the, the public there? Nope. Absolutely not. Justin Trudeau, Trudeau took his tail between his legs and ran off. As we're finding out that Justin Trudeau and his family left their home in Ottawa for undisclosed secret location because of alleged security concerns, running away from their constituents, running away from the people that they are supposed to be serving. Some people are alleging that Trudeau has fled to Cuba, but we have not seen any verifiable reports of that happening. But the way that this is characterized, the, the way that this plays off is that the government is not interested in, in serving the will of the people. It's interested in ignoring that and serving of course, special interest and multinational corporations tied into billionaire globalist cabals like the Davos Group and the World Economic Forum, where even Klaus Schwab a few years ago was bragging about how half of the government in Canada has been infiltrated, quote, penetrated by World Economic Forum representatives that are implementing their Great Reset, which, of course, is widely unpopular with the general public. This could be why, of course, Justin Trudeau is, is hiding, not answering, not talking to any of these people who have legitimate concerns against him and his actions against the people. And his response to, to, to all of this, especially when the convoy w was building, was growing, was, was cowardly. It was slanderous. He called the movement a small fringe minority of individuals. He said that they're holding, quote, unacceptable views. And as you could see from, from the photos and videos that we have been, been playing with you, this is not a, a fringe minority. Believing that, that you have dominion over your human body 
is is not an unacceptable view. It's more common sense than anything else. But of course, that's not the reality that autocrats live in, as of course, even some governments in Canada have been making laws outlawing support for, of course, the freedom truckers. And there has been a huge disdain and backlash by the billionaire globalist cabal against them, with even the Washington Post writing scathing, disgusting articles slandering these truckers, these working people, and even went as far as to draw a political cartoon that's neither funny nor thought-provoking, just literally slandering these hard-working blue-collar people as alleged fascists. Now, this trucker protest is going to have some significant ramifications, not just politically, not just socially, not just white-pilling a lot of people who are paying attention to it, giving them hope, inspiring them, creating copycat movements like we're hearing possibly happening in Holland, as, of course, there is allegedly reports and videos of their own trucker convoys being mobilized right now to protest the moves that are happening in that country. But of course, with with the truckers protesting, this leaves a lot of essential items unavailable at the stores, with many reports already coming in that there are some empty store shelves in Canadian grocery stores. Now, this is significant because of the protest, because by and large, it's a problem that has been exacerbated by the government putting restrictions on the free flow of capital and disrupting the global supply chain with their bureaucracy mandates, lockdowns, and restrictions. If it wasn't for the government implementing these laws and decrees which have started this, which, by the way, would have only exacerbated this problem even more, then there wouldn't be a response for it that called for protest. It's the government that disrupted the global supply chain, that prevented many goods from coming to you, and they're trying to prevent more goods from coming from you with their latest mandates on the border that are absolutely ridiculous not scientific at all the data doesn't provide or show any kind of significance or help or increase of well-being or positive impact at all it does show the government being able to implement and punish a public because they didn't do what the government wanted them to do and that's a policy that of course i do not believe in and there's a groundswell of individuals whether elon musk joe rogan the canadian truckers edward snowden kyrie irving russell brand you name it even freaking kid rock of all people there's a movement underway that's an equal reaction to what the government has been doing to us for the last two years. It's significant. It's worth paying attention to. And if you agree with that, share this video with your friends and family members, because just like I said in the beginning of this video, not only is there an equal reaction towards an action, this is also dependent on the the AI algorithm that, of course, runs YouTube, that if it sees a lot of people watching and sharing this video and, and long watch time, that means it will recommend it to other people, including others normies and kyles and karens out there that's the plan and then and then and then we're going to take all those normies kyles and karen and we're going to bring them in and we're going to give them uniforms the best political shorts.com and they're going to spread messages where they can't be censored and then we're going to bring them in to of course lukeuncensored.com and then really blow their mind away that's pretty much what i'm doing here i'm being honest i'm being transparent and i'm doing this because i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you guys actively participating and being a part of this this is why i love you guys stay tuned for more here on we
Luke Rudowski from We Are Change, always uh, bringing in uh, the the show with lots of new information regarding. The reason why I like to play Luke Rudowski in the beginning is because he goes over the news at the end of the week and what's coming into the beginning of the next week. So he's always a, a great example of what we can expect moving forward with the news cycle. But before I get we get in, into the elements of what he presented on his most recent show, I'm pleased to be inter- I'm pleased to be joined by three good friends, uh, individuals, uh, g- colleagues of ours, uh, Brett Finot from the schoolsucksproject.com, James Jordan, who is a guest blogger and autonomy graduate, and I'll let him speak as to what his uh, blog, he also has his own blog, and Daniel McCarthy from storyofnowhere.com, if I have that correct which is a, a book, a podcast, and a website. So without further ado, first go to Brett Finot. If you want to introduce you to this, you know, say who you are and where they can, people can find you and a little bit about yourself. Well, hey, thanks, Tony. It's great to be with all of you tonight. Uh, I'm Brett. I was the host of the School Sucks podcast, which is just wrapped up at the end of 2021 after uh, 12 years. Uh, my spinoff project from that currently is called the University, and that is a private social media. We operate on Discord, just like Autonomy does, just like the Grand Theft World community does. And we have a pretty lively exchange there. We have meetings a few times a week, and it's a good place for people to get support, accountability, share ideas, uh, contrast ideas. And uh, it's really grown over the last year, and that's where I spend most of my time uh, these days, but, uh, yeah, it's great to be here tonight. The only thing I should say as a caveat is, uh, as, as many people have heard, we've been having some critical infrastructure problems here in Pittsburgh where I live and, uh, they might affect the, the internet as well. So, uh, I think I just fixed everything and hopefully I'm, I'm here to stay at this point, but it's great to be with you and, uh, everybody listening as well. Thanks. You've got the cyber polygon people after you, bro. World Economic <laughs> Forum. Boom. They're coming after Brad, you are a, a very good friend of mine, uh, a colleague of ours. You've done incredible work. If you haven't seen some of Brad's work, please check out his, his original podcast, the School of Sucks podcast and check out your website was schoolsucksproject.com. And some of the most intelligent discussions I've ever had, even most recently, have occurred in your community. Just an incredible community of very dynamic individuals. The individuals that don't always agree on all points, but can certainly have a very meaningful discussion around complex topics. So I really appreciate some of the discussions I've had recently in there. Not to uh, contrast it too much with other discussions I've elsewhere, but really, really impressed by uh, the quality of your community. So. Thanks. Hey, real quick, just if, if anybody is listening and they've never heard of me before, schoolsucksproject.com slash Gatto, because uh, that's somebody that I would really like other people to also be familiar with if they're not. John Taylor Gatto, who was one of my faraway mentors in the whole school criticism project. So um, I have a video series based on his book, The Underground History of American Education. And I'll tell you, if 10 million people more 10 million more people knew who John Taylor Gatto was in this country right now, we might be in a very different situation. So uh, that's always something I'm, I'm working to spread the word about is who Gatto is, what he did and what he said, most importantly. So thanks. Uh, in fact, I have a deep dive later. I'm using part of the underground history, uh, getting a bit more into Francis Galton 
and sort of, you know, his connection to Darwin and sort of the burgeoning eugenics movement and psychometrics and all those sorts of concepts, which I went over before, but I'm going to tie it into some elements of the Anglo-American establishment. So he is uh, well ahead of his time. And you also did, for me, I remember Rich uh, pointed this out to me uh, as being a work of art, an absolute work of art when we talked about it, a production that still uh, holds true to my heart today called, I think it was called The American Way. Is that, mm-hmm. do you remember that series you did? Is that what it's called? Am I, do I have that correct? Cause it's been quite some time to listen to it, but I remember when we did, cause I was staying with Rich back in 2011 as an incredible production you did that really outlined the, the consequences of what Gatto is presenting in his book. You know, yeah. here are some future consequences, you know? Yeah. So it was based on uh, like a seven or eight minute video that I made probably 10 years ago called the American way, our connection to Nazi Germany of all things to call a video. Uh, so uh, Very yeah, it, it, I think it might be the most popular video that we have on our YouTube channel, which is school sucks podcast. And it's still up. Um, but people had a lot of questions in the comments and they, you know, it, it definitely was an oversimplification as any eight minute YouTube video is going to be about a massively complex subject, how Germany turned from, you know, a pretty sophisticated first world, uh, liberal society into, unfortunately, what they're most famous for in the 20th century. And, uh, you know, it wasn't the rise of one bad man. It was a process decades, if not over a century in the making. So, uh, you know, we we outline in a in a three part series called The American Way, the philosophic corruption, uh, the economic problems, the social problems uh, that that happened, of course, most importantly, uh, the the compulsory education system that took hold in Germany in the 19th century or in the in Central Europe in the 19th century. And um, we compare and contrast with where America was at at the time I made that series, which was now about 10 years ago. Fantastic series. I really employ people to go check that out. It's uh, just fan- You've done so much incredible work. And I think one of the things that you know I remember most when I first met you is your ability to sort of connect on a personal level. Um, like the, when I first listened to your podcast, the first like 10 or 20 episodes you ever did, um, the very beginning of your podcast, just telling your story about your experiences in schooling, your experiences, the big pharma sort of impacting the children you're working with in schooling, which that ties into what we're experiencing today really had an impact and an eye opening moment for me, like just realizing how much, uh, sort of how much crony capitalism is involved in these sort of state-run institutions and how much that's impacting children. Uh, and that was before I even knew about the methodology or the type of outcome-based education system that was in place. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And uh, it is it is great to be here. Great to be with you. And I look forward to this tonight. I'll pro- I'm going to stick around until midnight. My bedtime is like 10 p.m. So I'm going to push it a couple extra hours tonight for this experience. Bad boy. <laughs> bad boys on tonight right so get some sunglasses you know have yourself a drink okay so next up let's see daniel mccarthy a fellow classicist uh a lover of all things related to ancient philosophy history and also scholasticism and medieval philosophy and history so we share a likeness a kinship there no doubt and um currently going through aristotle's organon so i you know you're resonating quite well with my soul right now in regards to all of that. Uh, your website, your blog is called The Story of Nowhere. Do I have that correct? You do. Storyofnowhere.com is where you can find pretty much everything I've ever done. So that's where I would point to everyone. I've got a book, I've got a podcast, and it's all at storyofnowhere.com. 
Fantastic. And what just so people can sort of get familiar with what uh, what made you interested in sort of the subject of classical philosophy and utopian ideals, especially being carried forward. Now it's a big subject, but let's even condense it down to like a. Well, it all started in eighth grade when I saw Alex Jones break into the Bohemian Grove. (laughs) No, really. I mean, that is part of it. But my interest in philosophy, I guess, stems from just my nature. Ever since I was a child, I was that kid who was like trying to turn the fridge light off using that little switch and wondering like, is it supposed to be light or is it supposed to be dark? Or I would ask these questions to my mother, like, why is it in the summertime when it's really hot? I want to be cold, but in the wintertime when it's really cold, I want to be hot. What's a human being supposed to be? So I don't know. That's a weird childish example, but I suppose what I was always after was this question of universals and essences and stuff. And so as I got older, I just naturally drifted towards the philosophical uh, subject. I, and I went to a community college and I didn't really find any solace there as far as the big questions I wanted answered. And so I decided to go it alone and uh, then not quite alone because I found some other people who were into the same stuff. So I don't know. I've always just been hitting the hitting the road hard when it comes to philosophy. And then the historical stuff has always just been very tightly linked. But I yeah, guess I would right. say history and that being concurrent with current events has just always been an almost unexplicable passion of mine. I love it. I've got a weird obsession with it. And that's about it. I could go through the whole long story, but uh, I'd take all well, We that. share a kinship there. I mean, I've listened yeah. to some of your podcasts in the past and just absolutely incredible work. I think you were actually one of them. You're going over for Chino, which I just gave a long mm-hmm. dissertation about in the GTW community, which I uh, thank you for the compliment, James, by the way, which segueing over now, James... James is an autonomy graduate. He particip- he has participated from day one on when I started the town halls. You are just an incredible person. Um, I appreciate your your comments and also the the amount of research you've done. Um, you always uh, pick up something that I'm not familiar with and throw it my way, and I'm just like, you know what? I really. You also, for people who aren't aware, he's um, been helping us with production elements in the background. So he shares a lot of resources that I then use on the show. And I wanted to get him on to be able to, you know, give a plug to his blog and have the opportunity to participate in a round table together because he's, he's been so instrumental in the success of the town hall. And so I can't thank you enough for that. And I'm pleased. I'm really thank you for joining us tonight and uh, your blog. Where can people find you? Uh, well, thank you, of course, for uh, providing me the opportunity to uh, get my fanboy dream um, to become a reality, Tony, and uh, finally Absolutely. be on uh, on Grand Theft World. It took um, me and so, not Rich. See, so I, well, I do that. You no, know, it. Hey, it, however <laughs> it happened, it happened, and, and that's really the important thing. Um, but uh, uh, no, again, uh, you know, nothing but but thanks for all the kind words uh, that you that you offer. Um, I mean, it's, it's been you really appreciate your participation. It's really been yeah. uh, amazing. So, oh well, thank you, thank you. Um, you know, folks can uh, they can visit my website. It's uh, manufacturingreality.org, um, and basically, you know, uh, most of everything that I have done on the internet, or at least that has my unique fingerprint on it, uh, they can find on that website. Uh, whether it's uh, essays that I've written um, or, uh, you know, the the blog that I currently produce, which, of course, is uh, Grand Theft World Liberty Radio. There's links to that there as well. 
Um, so it's just kind of the central location for uh, where folks can find, uh, you know, the work that I've done, the independent research uh, that I've been able to produce over the course of uh, really only about the last year or so. And your independent research is like sort of a reminds me of Whitney Webb in, in, insofar as like doing deep dives into complex subjects of finding the sort of financial connections and the political connections. It reminds me more of a sort of a kinship to that. So just really good work there. And I just wanted to point out, you also do a podcast that's tomorrow night. I'm correct. That's Liberty Radio at seven. Is yes. that still happening? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Very yep. Good. We're still uh, still rolling strong with the Liberty Radio. Haven't quite figured out the uh, the streaming portion of it yet, uh, but we're getting to that. It's just a little bit uh, too complex for Phoenix and I uh, at the moment, uh, but hopefully it won't be for very much longer. Uh, but I will very give good. folks a uh, a quick sneak peek into the episode that uh, we'll be dropping on Tuesday uh, and recording tomorrow night. Uh, for anyone who actually caught last week's episode and the interview that I did uh, with Angry North uh, over in the United Kingdom, uh, he actually has a new track that we're going to be world premiering uh, on this week's episode of Liberty Radio. So if y'all dug uh, what you were hearing last week, make sure you check out this week's episode as well. World premiere. That's awesome. Well, c- congratulations. Use that platform. That's amazing. Um, and you'll drop that probably tomorrow night for the the subscribers or, or probably Tuesday morning. No, it'll be Tuesday. Tuesday. Yeah. I'm not that ambitious. (laughs) (laughs) No, cause we start, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Well, we start taping at, uh, at seven o'clock on, uh, on Monday nights. Uh, so by the time we get done, it's, it's typically a three hour show. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's well after 10 o'clock by the time we get done. And unfortunately, like Brett, I'm kind of an old man. So my bedtime tends to come pretty early. Um, so yeah, Tuesday morning is usually when the post-production gets done and, uh, normally I can get it out around lunchtime. Very good. And for people who are interested that I know you always post in the GTW discord and I'll probably post it on your, your blog as well. So yeah. Oh yeah. All over the social ghettos. Yeah. Pretty much anywhere I can, uh, I can reach out. It'll, it'll get posted. Oh, like that social ghettos. That's fantastic. Okay, so well, since this is the roundtable, we just you know Luke Radowski just went over a ton of news. You know this whole concept of Newton's third law and action and reaction and the crypto regulation, New Zealand uh, that sort of reporter or whoever that was that's caught there that can't get back into her own country because of the I don't know has to do with vaccination status or whatever. Um, just absolutely deplorable and crazy. Speed cams, pregnant men. You know, the old school reference with Will Ferrell. Love that. Because I love that movie when I was a kid or a teenager. I always found that entertaining. But I figure before we get into any of those topics, what do you guys think about this trucker thing? You know, I saw in the chat someone say there might be some Soros connection. I haven't seen any sort of... It seems dubious, though, right now. I've tried to do a quick search of it. I couldn't find anything meaningful there. Um, And even if there is anything meaningful there, what's that? portend about the whole situation but just even before we try to get into more nefarious aspects around it just more generally what do you guys think about that like what do you guys think about this huge protest the what's happening with trudeau by the way someone also mentioned that like half of uh, trudeau's parliament is part of the young global leaders program of the world economic forum which yes we will get to klaus stating that later on tonight probably like three in the morning but we will get it i have it on there on the show card but uh, does anyone have any thoughts, any suggestions, any ideas around what the hell is going on with that shit? 
Well, I could comment just on the face value thing. Of course, there's always some possibility that some big money is lurking behind the scenes in any movement, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the movement itself is something that shouldn't be paid attention to or even be generally judged as a net positive for the simple reason that most of the time when you have a large movement, the the vast majority of the people involved with it are not involved with that big money connection. Now, this, of course, can be a dangerous thing because it only takes one person to screw up a peaceful protest, as we all know. So I'm not saying that we should just assume that everything's going to be good either. But face value, this is a good example of the old dictum from Orwell. Hope lies with the proles, man. That's where it is. It's going to be the working class types of people, the ones who aren't ensconced in the sort of ivory tower philosophies that uh, that just pervade all of the mainstream media sources and the colleges and all that stuff. These are real working class people. It's probably most of them. Like I said, maybe if there are some plants in there, this I think is a good sign that the average people, the people who are important, not the ones who sit and abstract all day, but the ones who actually do the material work that needs done when they have a problem with something, we all have a problem with something. And uh, so that's my take on that. And I would just say at the beginning, Luke said, uh, the revolution will not be televised. And I thought that was funny because despite the, I mean, I don't know how many truckers there are. I haven't really seen much mainstream coverage of this. I mean, it's mentioned. Trying to get on Fox News. That's right. pretty much it. Yeah. It's, it's not actually really being televised, kind of like how when uh, the 2020 summer riots were going on and people were getting beaten and stuff, that wasn't summer really televised. Yeah, right. That wasn't televised either. So it's Gil Scott Heron was right, man. The revolution won't be televised, but apparently it will be tweeted. So at least we have that because we've got like on the ground people reporting and recording and posting what's going on. So we've got technology in this case working in our favor. Yeah, I I really uh, I like that sentiment, uh, Daniel, uh, because one of the uh, one of the promos that I put out for an early episode of Liberty Radio uh, was letting people know that indeed the the revolution will not be televised, but it will be broadcast. Uh, and indeed it is being broadcast because even though the corporate media is doing their damnedest uh, to keep this information away from the population, people are still finding out about it because it's being broadcast on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, uh, on all these different platforms that even though they're trying to clamp down with their censorship as hard as they possibly can, the information is still getting out. And I'll tell you guys, the thing about this that probably gives me the most hope, and and again, all of the you know, the questions uh, about uh, funding and, and Soros and, and all of those sorts of things, all of that aside, the thing that gives me the most hope is seeing those people on the overpasses as the convoys are going underneath those bridges, awesome. cheering the truckers on. Because what that tells me more than anything else is that without a shadow of a doubt, the corporate media has been straight up lying to us, not just for the last two years, but for a long, long time. And all of these, um, you know, these polls and these these numbers and the way that they try to to carve up the population into this group and that group, it's just it's all garbage. It's all nonsense. It's stuff they're making up and trying to get us to believe because 
apparently there's a lot more people in support of this movement up in Canada than what they want us to know about. And that's really the thing that, that stands out to me. Yeah. And I, I agree with everything I've heard so far. I'm watching it, uh, obviously with a lot of hope for that very same reason. Like you see the widespread public support that it has and how that shows up on social media. Uh, I'm watching it with a lot of curiosity and I'm also watching it kind of on the edge of my seat, waiting for something bad to happen there. And as far as mainstream media coverage is concerned, uh, I, I mean, this is speculative, but maybe they're waiting for the same thing. Like it, it only takes one person or a handful of people or one trucker. And uh, then you've got a news story and you juxtapose whatever this bad behavior is um, naturally occurring or manufactured, as we know these things are sometimes. And you juxtapose that with uh, pictures of empty grocery store shelves and uh, that produces a, a very interesting, intense dialectic where it's like now you see the consequences of um, the, the people who dare to not be team players. As, as Trudeau said, uh, you know, a, a, a minority with unacceptable views. That's, that seems like dangerous language, but uh, he didn't get a lot of pushback. I know he fled the city uh, today or yesterday. He but, fled uh, the country. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know that. I just knew he was. I didn't know where he went. I just knew he wasn't in Ottawa anymore. Uh, Yeah, according according to Israeli sources. And and again, this is, uh, you know, I don't have firsthand knowledge of this. It's just a report that I saw on the Internet. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, But apparently Israeli sources were saying that uh, he fled to an undisclosed location in the United States. Mm -hmm. Across the border. So. Bigger picture, I've been saying for a long time, like probably since the beginning of the the pandemic, like if these kinds of people went on strike for 72 hours, they could change the world, right? Like the kind of people who are um, overlooked, underappreciated for for the work they do, um, talked down to because of of their station socially, economically. Um, by like Danny mentioned, the abstractors and ivory tower types, uh, these people don't get nearly the respect they deserve. And if they just, um, you know, sat still for 48 hours, two to three days is all it would take to change the world. So, like I said, I'm on the edge of my seat right now, uh, kind of holding my breath to see what, what the outcome of this is actually going to be. But it is a, uh, a very promising situation that could also be very, uh, you know, emotionally deflating very quickly if if something bad happens there or the or there is the appearance of something bad happening there. And a lot of people buy it. So those are my thoughts on it currently. All brilliant thoughts. I mean, it's interesting because like there's so many ways this could be potentially manipulated uh, in one situation, you know, later on for the intermission, we have Aaron Melissa talking about a post-work society. We have this, the emerging technology of self-driving trucks, right? So like that's one angle they could bring in and talk about like, well, you know, if this is going to be a continual issue with people not subjecting themselves to the mandates uh, and going along with what we've, are, you know, forcing upon the population, you know, we'll f- eventually bring that in. I think that'll have a very negative uh, outlook on society. I think that'll not be received very well, at least if it's spun in that capacity right now. 
But then, like you said, Brett, all it takes is one agent provocateur, one bad apple or bad actor to sort of spoil the bunch as the old cliche goes. And next thing you know, you have a situation where, like you said, you can juxtapose an empty food shelf with what the truckers are doing. And then you can show sort of uh, the very feminized and sort of semi-gentrified, what's his name, Uh, Justin Trudeau, cowering in America from these, you know, ravenous truckers these blue collar workers that are just you know so aggressive and so mean you know for the and for the woke ideology types they'd look at it and be like oh my god like how this is so conspicuous and so over the top and so in your face you know so there's so many we have to be careful you know we have to use our reason we have to use discernment and judgment to make sure that we're able to see through sort of the narratives and some of the fallacies they might are going to be associated with those narratives if anything actually manifests that allows the mainstream media to pick up a particular narrative they can run with, especially something that can denigrate what is attempting to take place with this trucker protest. And we've actually seen some positive outcomes, I think, already to this, not from the trucker protest, but wasn't there, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, something to do with the airlines many months ago with uh, mandates. But I forget if they painted that in the light of some other sort of issue when it came to the unions. And so there's a sort of spin there. But I think there is, I remember we had this on the show card a couple of times. There was a couple of times where the governments have already capitulated to some of the blue, co- blue collar demands of, of workers sort of, you know, in the trenches, in the various industries that are uh, necessary. And, um, but I'm trying to, the one airline is the first one that comes to mind, but I think there's might be a couple other ones, but this is the biggest because the supply chain in general, it's not just with food, but with goods in general, I, you know, they come over in the boats and then they have to get on freight and then they have to be delivered. This is the biggest element that could affect the supply chain. Not again, just with food, but with all elements that we need in our society. So this is probably the most ubiquitous, uh, protest we've seen in so far as the ripple effects we could see in the culture uh that i you know i agree and i'm glad you brought up orwell because orwell if i remember correctly is sort of an old school socialist and so he and one of the things he would do is he would look at individuals i remember he had this description of this this uh woman in the link one of his essays uh it was like in eastern europe somewhere around the baltic states um or south southwestern russia area and just talking about just like the deplorable state of their their being and like his the need for like just the ability for them to have some basic humanity and so although he had a socialist sort of you know background he sort of saw it in the light of the deplorable state of of human beings living at that time and so there's sort of a bringing sort of a humanity to it and i'm glad he sort of he reminds me you know when, when I hear Jimmy Dore talk, I sort of think of a comedian version of that old socialist ideal of helping out the truly destitute in society uh, as a sort of loose analogy. And, um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's something that if collective action, if people could take collective action, especially in the, those that frequent sort of blue collar industries, the things that we need every day to live, it, they would realize just how much power we actually have. But the problem is Typically, they tend to keep us divided and conquered. So I'm with Brett. I'm sort of waiting with bated breath, uh, so to speak, as to what might precipitate out of this. But so far, so good. And I'm happy to see, to what was it, James? I think what you said, the reaction of all the people, not, not the truckers themselves, mm-hmm. all the people supporting them, that is very uplifting. 
And it's a, a very great sign to see that in that the freezing cold, because the North for people who aren't aware the Northeast has just been, it's been like one of the coldest winters I've experienced in many, many years thus far. And we're like a third of the way into winter. Lovely. And uh, so to be out there in the freezing cold, I know Canadians are used to this, but uh, still yet, I mean, it's freezing cold. It's not exactly very fun to be out there, but to see that many millions of people or hundreds of thousands, potentially, you know, millions out there supporting them along the way, I'm talking about the whole caravan is really, really positive. So hopefully it stays in that direction and there's no, no way to sort of for them to spin the story. And one of the ways I think we can prevent that is to Danny's point, using the technology against them. And that's where like, we can actually take, there's this to James, what you said, like there's still production It's still going to be broadcast, right? Mm -hmm. This is still going to be broadcast. And that's the most important thing is that people can, okay, whatever happens. I mean, this is sort of what happened with the sort of January 6th or the Whitmore plot, like people caught, Oh, there are agent provocateurs. There are these sort of bad apples. So like, you know, now we can spot them, you know, there'll be ways in which maybe we could spin the story back at them. And people are starting to wake up because of that, because they realize the sort of Hegelian dialectic that's manifesting manifests itself throughout the uh, mainstream media is sort of blowing up in their face oftentimes because we can actually spin the story using the same techniques by which they're spinning the story. So I think that's an interesting element, an interesting way to use because the war right now, and there's a war going on is between the mind, between the two hemispheres. It's not a war fought with guns and bombs and tanks anymore. Um, it's a war for the human spirit, I think more than anything else. And so if we can still stand in collective action, I think that a voluntarily stand in collective action should state, I think we have, we have a great chance of being able to at least resist some of the more pernicious elements that might are trying to be manifested by the World Economic Forum, Davis Group, and some of these larger supranational organizations. Yeah, and socially, I, I do think it is a bit of a war for the middle on the management of these perceptions that are happening right now. So I know we've all been used to this, uh, this concept that was introduced by uh, Matthias Desmet of mass formation for like four or five months now, maybe, maybe some of us longer. And um, yeah, whatever anybody thinks of it, one of the useful things that did come out of it was the way he broke out. I, I don't know where he got his percentages of like, 30% of people will always go for the mass hypnosis, 20% will always resist, and then you have this group in the middle. And that group in the middle is composed of people who are uninformed, lazy, scared, and they don't do anything as a result of that. So their inaction is portrayed by the media and the political elites as compliance, right? By not acting, like if they weren't complying, they would act. So all of this this narrative war, this information war that's happening right now, I think is about those people, because if if you're talking about the fringes of this situation and we we do it with the, the Canadian trucker story currently, uh, you know, people who've persevered through this situation for almost two years now are either on one side looking at the next group of people that they can point their arrows at or people on the other side looking at the next group or individual that they can turn into a hero. And the arrows in this case are those anxieties. So again, it's like that's there are there there is some block of people that are immediately going to villainize these truckers. They don't need any more information about what's happening. Nothing they can uh, they, they can see is going to change their mind about this. There is no wake up call. I mean, for some people, and maybe there's the, that group uh, on one hard edge even breaks out into different levels of reasonableness. 
But most of those people are never going to be persuaded by something like this. And there's people on the other side who are always going to support this no matter what happens in Ottawa over the next days or weeks. So this is very much about uh, the hearts and minds of the people in the middle. And uh, I think what James said about, you know, seeing people on the overpasses for a lot of those people. I mean, I don't know this for sure, but that might be their first act of defiance uh, in in this whole thing is that, yeah, I, I can go to an overpass and I can be part of a crowd of people that waves and holds a sign and cheers as these guys drive by. So that is another part of this that's encouraging. But let's just remember that there is there, <laughs> there is no winning. We all know this. There is no winning everybody over uh, by any means at this point. There there are real dead enders, and they're going to go all the way down. So yeah, absolutely, truly people, absolutely, yeah. Brett. Um, and but I think the the thing to remember with that is uh, again with the group that is in the middle. Um, the way that you are going to to be able to sway them and to bring them over to the side of freedom and personal liberty is to keep having these demonstrations of going against the narrative, you know, going against uh, daddy government um, and standing up and speaking out and showing support for the people who are doing the same. Uh, Because again, as more people see that happening, it's going to snap more people out of the mass formation and over time, the the ones who can't be be brought out of the mind control are going to become the minority. And, you know, essentially it's going to be them against the rest of the world, whereas, you know, the the rest of the time it's been us against the rest of the world. So um, it, it's just something that has to be done. Well, you know, to Matthias Desmond's point, the, it's, he said it was 30, 30, then 40 percent is that middle, maybe right. 40 to 50, 40 percent. We'll just go with his numbers. The thing about the middle crowd is they don't really want to go along with what's happening, but they're too scared and they don't, they aren't doing the research and they also go, it's sort of go along to get along mentality. So Matthias pointed out, if we don't get, that's the group we have to get to. We have to show like, and I've met many friends and my family even for the first time asking questions I never thought they'd ever ask in their entire life that 10 years ago, I wish they were asking me, but it was, there, it wasn't conspicuous 10 years ago. Now it is. That, uh, you know, there's something seemingly bigger going on. I can see now how tyranny can actually manifest itself. It's not just some abstract idea that I read about in a book about Nazi Germany or about the gulags in Soviet Russia. It's something more than that. And I can actually see how it can manifest in the society now. It's about if we can capture the hearts and minds of those individuals, we can actually find a way to resist the, the coming tyranny globally. But if not, Matthias said, then the only other option is we're going to have to literally go through it. Yeah, which and that, that's a scary proposition. I, I do see an advantage in this particular situation, though, simply being, and of course, it's never going to be this way uh, all the time. But right now with the truckers, we're seeing a rise of the sorts of productive classes. And I think that goes a very long way to actually capturing that middle, because, of course, generally speaking in a society, it tends to be people who are I know this is kind of mixing different metrics here, but the middle class tends to be a very productive class. Now, people who tend towards the middle class economically, being that they make up such a large portion of the population, it simply stands to reason that a lot of them would also constitute this so-called middle in the mass formation formulation. So as we see more people who are actually productive in the economy, deciding to say like, look, we're going to stand up against this because it's against our interests. 
they're the ones who are going to have an actual trickle down effect because not only do their actions affect their own lives and their own industry, their industry is inextricably linked to the lives of everyone else, ideologues included. So this is one instance where I think that, of course, I'm always a very skeptical and cynical person, but so I'm always looking out for the false flag kind of thing. And it could definitely happen. And I kind of like Brett said, and like James said, like we've all said, I too am waiting with bated breath and what's going to happen. How are they going to screw with this? But at the same time, as you get more and more people being concerned with this particular avenue of thought, it becomes more difficult to lie about it simply because, you know, if you get a certain gigantic percentage of the population all out in the streets concerned with one thing, it becomes more difficult to fabricate a story about it when most people can say, ah, yeah, I knew someone who was there or I was there or whatever. It's harder. I'm not saying it's impossible to do it because I never want to, you know, pat myself on the back or say, we've, we've done it guys. We're there. There's always a chance that things go sideways, but in this particular case, I'm at least a little more hopeful Uh, in that it just seems to be such a mass uprising. And this kind of goes back to, so we've got the middle in the mass formation. We've got the more, that is more people actually becoming invested in this because the productive class is involved. So it's affecting more people. Uh, So then from that, we have, it's difficult to lie to them. And that takes me back to what you said before about Orwell in Eastern Europe. And, uh, you know, in 1984, he talked about the prole woman who, you know, she was a rather portly gal and he could, uh, the Winston couldn't understand how this woman could ever be happy. And yet there she was whistling as she was doing the laundry and she seemed like she was actually living a good life. And so this is sort of a meandering way to get to this point, but we actually see the human spirit in his formulation, living within the people who sometimes tend to be destitute. And it's that spirit that actually gets these people to be the resistance. They're the ones who actually do not get subsumed by party life, even though they lose out on the sort of economic benefits. So I support the truckers and whatever it is they're doing. Um, you know, I hope, I hope it all turns out. Okay. It could always go bad. But, but- it's also more meaningful for them too, just to be, be a part of that support, you know, especially everyone sort of that lower income status. I like the fact you brought up the incentives because that's an important element. There is like a sort of economic incentive. It's like all of a sudden, like, you know, not only is food prices going up for many reasons beyond this, but now I can't even get food at the damn grocery store. There's a little bit more going on. Yeah. It's, it makes you wake up and have to sort of, if not participate, be aware, if not participate, be aware. And it, and it goes across industries too. Like I work for a, a blue collar industry. I won't say what it is. I'll just say it's founder had a German metal pinned on him at some point. And if my business went under, it's like a lot of people would be <laughs> a lot of people would be in trouble. Um, and so there is that sort of industrial pressure uh, and there's the pressure on the side of the workers. A lot of people I work with are very much opposed to the sorts of top down mandates and controls that are being discussed. So it's good to see that it's not just isolated to the airlines or to the trucks or whatever. So. I, I will just say, too, I do think that this current event is the most encouraging and emboldening thing we've seen um, in this entire saga that's gone on for the last couple of years. 
And I do think it resonates with like a lot of people who are probably in that middle group who might be like our parents' age. And these are people that if you're like me, you've had really frustrating conversations with for, I don't know, 15 years. Like, hey, do you think it's weird that we have to take our shoes off at the airport because, you know, 17 years ago, some guy tried to light his shoe on fire on a plane? Do you think that's weird that we all still do this? And they go, no, we always took our shoes off at the airport. No, you know, they don't they don't remember another way. They don't see cause and effect. They don't see the. Um, the march uh, of of those kinds of uh, submissions. And I what what I, I mentioned that group because I think that for the first time, a lot of these people uh, are recognizing the the raging river that they're in, the rapids that have kind of got them, but they they don't know how to swim. Like they don't know how to swim. Um, but now they know they're in the river. They didn't know before. And so they're grasping on to any kind of life raft thing. For many of them, it's Q. Uh, but they keep being swept along. And swept along in this metaphor means they keep just doing the things that they're generally supposed to do because they don't see any alternatives. So you could have a conversation with some boomer who says something like, I just got my booster. No, all right. Yeah. I mean, you're 70, whatever. I, I understand your risk calculation. And then they'll say, all right, and I hear there's like little robots in it. Right. So those are like two competing ideas that these people are having. Uh, and I say, you know, I remember this is a real conversation that I had with somebody. I said, whatever this robot thing is, uh, that's not for you to investigate. I don't think you know what you're talking about. I don't think the person who told you that or sent you some article knows what they're talking about. I would just probably let that go. But you know, here they are like aware of the fact or or wanting to be aware of the fact, wanting to do sense making about what's happening right now. But all they can do is the next thing that they are supposed to do, because that's what they've they've always done. And notice the catch web. I bring this up all the time. I call them epistemological cartoons. Epistemology is a fancy word for a theory of knowledge. How do we know what exists or how do we know about the world that exists mm-hmm. using our five senses reason? There's different elements there. Um, but you know, these epistemological cartoons where you take some idea and you extrapolate it and blow it up and sort of sort of full on imagination as to like, well, what's these, you know, I've seen the let's talk about something like you know, nanorobots in the or <laughs> nanoparticles, nanorobots in the vaccine or graphene oxide, or or just as Peter McCarron and Richard Fleming showed that these are just quality control issues, which are what it like Japan experiences. Like, which one is it? Because none of us know, none of us are scientists, none of us have access to the, the electron, micros, to electron microscopes to analyze this stuff and then make sense of it. And every time I see an analyzation of this, it's sort of done by some sort of fringe individual and it's always one or a couple that it's hard to be able to deduce the, the veracity of what's being claimed, which is why I always say healthy form of skepticism. I'm not denying it, but I am saying there's a fallacy called the fallacy of adding your antium. You know, you can't say, but what if? what if it's this? Well, yeah, but until there's positive evidence, until there's evidence that can assert the positive, it's very difficult. And even the evidence that's brought forward, it's not consistent enough because there's many interpretations around it for me to, you know, back off. But it is interesting though, that they would, that someone like a boomer like that would say something like that, right? That they would even be aware of that. And I wonder, is that just one of the catch webs or are they looking for something to latch onto? That's like, well, maybe there is something more going on here, but they latch onto something that's so extreme instead of taking it back and being like, well, it could be as something as simple and as deadly as a quality yeah. control issue because quality control issues can kill you too. And I think that's one of the very serious, I was actually talking with Sana, uh, as a friend of mine and a participator in um, 
Grand Theft World, I call her in Turkish intelligence, Jordan James knows her. And uh, she was talking about some of the issues of the quality control and how deadly that can be um, in regards to, and I know this because my, my father and I, we go into manufacturer corporations and we see what goes on with QC departments all the time. When money becomes constricted, one of the places they looked at is overhead and quality control. And so it's just, it's hard to be able to understand what the necessary truth is there. But the fact that those individuals are looking for something is both a positive and a potential negative because they tend to then latch onto the first thing they find. And it's like, that's why I stress critical thinking. That's why I use the raging rapids metaphor because people who are in the river uh, being swept away and don't know how to swim, they grab onto stuff, right? right? Sometimes it could be another person. Sometimes it could be something worse. But I like I remember when somebody was telling me about the whole QAnon thing for the first time three years ago. I said, this is like the most boomer thing I've ever heard of. Right. <laughs> this is and, that is, and that was when it was like, uh, you know, a mild version of, of what it is now. Right. So, yeah, it, it's it it's a step in the right direction to like have this acknowledgement of the dire situation that you're in. And I think for people like that, whether they're boomers or not, more and more people who are in that, um, you know, inert middle group that Desmet talks about in mass formation are are starting to realize that. And what they need modeled for them is courage, which is what these guys in on their way to Ottawa are now arriving in Ottawa are doing. Uh, but another thing that might fall, you know, more uh, under our responsibilities is like good sense making, you know, like that's re- my point. Yes. Like whether it's trying to build an integral picture, like we probably pull you guys pull a lot of media together on this show. Some of it I watch and support and agree with. And some of it I I don't. But it's like putting together a whole picture like you do is a, is a really, really valuable service. And then doing the analysis is is modeling good sense making for people you know and and people need more of that they it, it's the most popular thing you can do um you know in media production is just plant some flag and plant your feet and never move it right that that is cuz because people want shortcuts to sense making too they we operate on heuristics we yeah. have to yeah right and they want somebody else to make sense for them. So now we're in this situation, whether it's with YouTube or social media, people are getting this massive horizontal view, and especially in the last two years, of all of these things that are happening. So many headlines coming at them every single day. They know that they have no clue of going vertical into any of this horizontal that's coming at them. So now it's like, all right, well, whatever the heuristic is, whatever the shortcut is to make the meaning I need to make as a sense-making being, that's one of my needs to do this. I know it is. So I take these shortcuts, it produces this insecurity. And now I either need a group that's made the same sense or a leader who's planted his flag or her flag and is sure they've made sense of the situation for me to follow. The so, heuristic creates yeah. a myopic viewpoint. And that's one of the elements of Matthias's point is that like you get to focus on one tiny specific particular thing. Right. And that's something that's very concerning because when there's data overload, like one of the concerns I have is the situation, why do we create heuristics like this? Well, it's because there's just too much data. You just cannot process all of it and it, well, one, we're not even taught to be able to use critical thinking in a way that we would be able to process more complex data more quickly. And number two, even if we were, there is an overload of information coming in from all streams. It's like, how do we be able to navigate 
did you know what I'm saying there? How do how do we sort of navigate that sort of complexity? It's something my friend and I talk about who works in, in high level networking. He talks about the data overload and he uses this sort of metaphor of a circuit board and sort of data processing where it's essentially uses Boolean logic. There's too much draw on the power supply, it creates a low voltage situation. And we essentially create these min-max categories. We take simple categories where we put information in and we build a simple narrative and that gives us meaning in our life. And we get, it gives us the reason to wake up in the morning, put our clothes on, go to work, do our things, support our family, and then go to sleep at night, figuring everything's all, everything is okay. And it's, well, it's not. And you know, when that crumbles, what happens? And that's that's the scary thing that I think Desmond has sort of highlighted. It's like, well, then they're going to look for another heuristic in a way. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, and uh, just like you were pointing out there, Tony, it's it's so simple for you know any media, whether we're talking about corporate media, the independent media, or whatever, to to be able to take that that singular focus that that myopia and transfer it from one object to the next to just keep leading people along. Well said. Also, this is better than I could have imagined. Absolutely fantastic discussion. I think, well, since you mentioned cowardice, Brett, I'm going to have, I'm going to do a little, uh, a little uh, curveball here. Let's go ahead and do the Academy of Ideas now, if you guys are right with that. Let me play that and sort of give a comment around that because the the con the um, theme of it is about cowardice and sort of the proportional relationship to cowardice and the rise of tyranny. So I think that's a good segue. Can what I just mentioned. say one thing? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, before we it, leave, because mm-hmm. you uh, you mentioned like why do we have heuristics and stuff, and I, I would say that part of it is really just because we obviously being human beings with needs that we need to meet biologically, physiologically, emotionally, etc it becomes very difficult to concern ourselves with all of these abstract things going on outside of our immediate sphere of control. And yet, because of the sort of society we live in, which is hyper-connected and complex interdependence plays a large part of it, we're forced to have to care about these things. But because we literally can't actually understand them, we're forced to kind of pigeonhole ourselves into these ready-made epistemological cartoons, like you said, so I just I pulled up Walden here and I'm trying to find the quote and I'm not going to be able to do it. But where he says something about, you know, the telegraph is this wonderful invention that lets people in Maine know what's going on in Texas. And he says, why in the world do they need to know what's going on in Texas? And it's like the extrapolation of that is where we're at now. Now we need to know what's going on in Ottawa and over here and over there and everywhere. And it just creates this overload of stress that we could never possibly deal with. You know, there's a sociological theory that states, and it's just a theory, but it's an interesting theory that we've only evolved to be able to handle around 250 members of a social group. So extending that beyond uh, 250 members, feeling as though you're part of like now a global family and competing in like a global society on many levels, you know, whether it's for sexual partners, whether it's just in the market for a job, whether it's, you know, just with friends and like various segments of uh, society, you know, it's, it's almost overwhelming. Like and in fact, it is overwhelming, and that has a large that large consequence on the ideas of identity, uh, depression, anxiety, fresh, like just all these different elements that we sort of see manifest in our own culture that are sort of seemingly out of control. Um, a lot of this has to do with the feeling that we don't have control, and that it's sort of meaningless because we're in a sea of like not just 
a smaller community, but a, a sea of a larger community that we're constantly sort of interacting with that is so far outside the scope of our everyday experience. And this contradiction creates a sort of free-floating anxiety in a way, if you think about that. And, and even without the COVID narrative, that's in, in and of itself, I was this, I, I was getting into those theories before COVID ever manifested because I could see it ha- happening already. And just thinking about it now, sort of off the top of my head, I'm like, wow, I didn't really, I probably put it or thought about those before, but you know, that's a really good point you bring up that uh, complex interdependence crowds out common sense. There you go. All said. I think a good word for it is fatigue. And I think you can really get the sense of this, like even not just with that, that super wide horizontal, like what you'd get on a Twitter scroll or a Facebook scroll. But even if you just watch CNN or listen to NPR or even Fox news for like an hour straight, like you'll feel it. I think you'll feel the kind of mental and emotional fatigue, especially after this duration uh, of this this whole situation, like two years at this point, that the average person is going to just to generate a little bit of sympathy uh, and the the defensiveness that people have in the sense that they've made. Uh, it is even I, to watch CNN ironically or critically for an hour is exhausting. It is exhausting. And even if you understand the the BS of it, um, it's still going to hit you on a gut level, right? Yes, You're still going to walk away from it feeling worse, feeling, feeling more anxious. Um, unless, I mean, I think that you can, you know, you can prepare yourself to deal with something like that. But if you're just like, ah, I'm going to see what the mainstream is saying and you sit there for long enough, uh, you are going to experience mental and emotional fatigue from that. I think most people are. But there's a worse situation where if you're sitting there watching that, you think, it, you know, in places where it's on, which I guess is like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess people choose to watch it voluntarily, but I would guess most CNN viewing is done in places where people don't have access to the remote control like airports and gyms. But yeah, I um, thought about that too. Yeah, it's 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 exhausting. And if you consider that to be the most trusted name in news, man, that is stressful. I don't know how Steven Crowder does it. He literally only uses like CNN and MSNBC. Like he he has that streaming all when he's doing his productions, he uses almost articles exclusively sourced from like CNN or Washington Post or The Atlantic or elements of that. And I'm just like, I could not sit down and listen to that with my rational mind and, and be able to get, because it does hit you on an emotional level. And you just know the lie. You walk away from it feeling exhausted because of the lies. And then that makes me feel like, are there really people that think like that? Is this like really how some, is that the other 30% on the yeah. other extreme? And it's like, I do know that is that, you know, I actually, I, I witnessed this in the sort of contrived echo chambers online. Like I can go to something like, um, uh, it's called the minority or after there is a, uh, Sam Cedar and those types, like you go and look majority, at those, yeah. majority <laughs> for it, minority for it yeah. law. Yeah. I'm thinking of the movie or in mm-hmm. the book rather. Um, but the majority report, Sam Cedar, like you go and look at, you know, the comments there and it's like a whole different world. It literally is like a whole different world of perspective. And it's just, it's interesting. I know Phoenix, James, you work with Phoenix, or, or you do a podcast with him. He does this all the time. He jumps into communities that are completely uh, contrary to a lot of the, I don't know how he does it. He's trying to find solidarity. He's trying to find that essence or universal, that grounding of humanity that Daniel mentioned. But uh, yeah, it's God exhausting. bless him. I don't, I don't know how he does it either, man. <laughs> Because, yeah, I mean, just just like uh, Brett was saying, if I find myself, you know, listening to CNN or MSNBC for more than like five or 10 minutes, 
like, yeah, it, it starts to become taxing. And I mean, it, even like with the, the independent media, if you're looking at this stuff, you know, 24 yeah. seven, um, which, also. which I did for a while, uh, and I'm not, I'm not, you know, trying to, uh, boast or brag or anything like that. Um, you know, I was actually just trying to share good information with people. Uh, but it even started getting to me where, you know, it was just like, I couldn't even, uh, compose a positive thought anymore just because of all of the the negativity that I was sifting through on a daily basis. Um, so yeah, I, for the people that that can do that and still maintain their their sanity and their integrity, God bless them. I can tell a story. I mean, when I worked was living with Rich and his wife, and we were you know trying to set up a studio, and we're doing the whole research community and doing a lot of extra research. It it, it did get to us. Every day you wake up like six thirty, seven in the morning, and we're putting on a documentary. We're reading books about essentially the worst elements of human behavior and the worst manifestations of that behavior in politics and psychology and economics and the philosophy. And it just becomes absolute. I mean, kudos to Rich has an incredibly strong willed disposition. He's like a sort of rock that's battered in the ocean from a tempestuous storm over and over again, but somehow it only gets sort of carved. It just makes him look more sleek and sort of in control. Um, he doesn't have many jagged edges anymore, but he's still able to stand strong. And that's a, a kudos to his personality to be able to handle that. But his wife and, and myself were a little bit more we're like tuning forks. And, you know, we just sort of pick up the vibrations floating in the air and it can be, you know, it can be a little bit difficult. And I think more people sort of re resonate with, with that struggle. <laughs> so a, a value add for the audience would be like, find, uh, I guess uh, your baseline with this stuff. So in October, I started thinking a lot about my next media project, which is going to require more mainstream media consumption and even worse than that, because there are things worse than the mainstream media. You mentioned majority report. Yeah, there's there's some really rough stuff. So my goal for the next project that I'm not going to talk too much about here is essentially trying to serve people as the audience nice meals out of shit that I find in a dumpster. Right. Which is a pretty big undertaking. That is. So that um is. I needed to say, all right, in October, like this is how much I needed to kind of pay attention to how much media I actually consume. I had to become very like uh, conscious of my content consumption. And then in November, I had to find not what like my baseline is based on this behavior, but true baseline, do a complete media and social media blackout fourth i mean people you know they do stuff in november or they don't november's like the month to not do stuff so this was my thing to not do um don't watch media and uh by the end of the month i had reached a level of serenity that i probably hadn't had since i was four years old you know and uh then in december i went back to it more consciously so if people feel overwhelmed um, or you feel like this stuff is wearing you down. Like if you don't think you can do a month, I mean, trust me, you can, like if shit hits the fan, a friend will call you. Uh, so, so you can, you I know there's going to be some like FOMO on that, but you can make it. And, uh, if you feel like you need it and then you set like a real baseline and see how you feel, then you can kind of add it back. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a subtraction diet, uh, with what you, the content you consume. And, uh, if you, if you feel like I said, a little bit worn down by what you're engaging with day in and day out, it might be a good thing to try. 
called the endless loop of abstractions. It's an interesting element. I mean, that's a brilliant point. And finding that baseline, because I don't think most people have actually discovered or even considered the concept of a baseline. Maybe ha- maybe some have, but because we've been inundated and sort of forced into this world um, progressively over the course of the past couple of decades with the emerging you know, interconnectivity and, and the technology and the cell phones and the social media platforms, and all this stuff, all of a sudden we're just in on it and we're inundated by it. And I mean, for me, I never actually, I've done baselines, so I can't say I've never done that, but it's about balance. Like I just know when I just need to probably because of the baselines I've done before in the past, actually the struggles I've had 10 years ago, I did disconnect in 2013. I completely disconnected. Then I went through a relationship. I got back into it. Then when that relationship failed and, um, you know, I moved back to my hometown. That's where I really disconnected again. And from there, I was able to sort of gain a sense of like reality, the reality that I can affect day to day in juxtaposition to reality that's highly abstracted. And that sort of interconnectivity that Daniel was talking about, about the, the being participant, a participant in the entire world through this sort of information technology. And, you know, it is important to find, it's extremely important, especially in today's narratives, that baseline. I mean, I've, Brett, I will say this in solidarity with that struggle, like, even though we tend to obviously show clips that we are familiar with and from producers that we, we frequent oftentimes on the show that we, we enjoy, um, it's still very difficult <laughs> to go to Infowars or Zero Hedge or Gateway Pundit or you know Daily Mail and go to the sections about COVID nineteen or go to the sections about technology or politics. And it's it's over. It even for me doing the show card and you see how big this is, it can be a little overwhelming. Um, I'm glad it's like once a week so I get caught up on everything, but it is not easy. Um, it is it is a struggle. So finding that balance, knowing the days. What I've done for myself is knowing what days I can disconnect where I don't do anything regarding the show. And as people in the background know, I wait to do the show card later in the week, let the clips pile in, let the productions take place throughout the week, let the news cycle run. And then I, I go, I spend one or two days on it, but I spend the whole day where I just like, cause I, you know, m- spending the time, making sure I, I put the show card in organized fashion that we can utilize on GTW Sunday nights. But before that, like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Tuesday night town hall, but Wednesday and Thursday complete just normal work, normal life. You know, when I was at my parents' house last week, just hanging out with their new house, like all this stuff, just that's for me what I had to do. And I'm just providing an example because like, I understand where my limits reside. And I'm afraid, as I've mentioned before, that at some point I might burn out. So I have to be, I'm ever vigilant of that because in the past, when I did burn out, it was an emotional reaction and I don't want any more emotional reactions. I've been talking talk in the background. It's like, essentially we all need to find that what that balance looks like and when we need to take a break. And so I've been sort of discussing that with myself as well, just because it is, it is a lot. Great hack. Do it with a group of people. If you can, your media consumption and, and have fun doing it and realize that there's a lot of comedy in the world outside beyond your sphere of control. There's tragedy, but uh, you know, comedy and tragedy have, have mixed well for thousands of years. Uh, at this point. So with that kind of recognition, if you don't have access to a group of people who want to watch, uh, you know, alternative media or mainstream media with you, find a group of people who are broadcasting themselves doing it and having a good time. And that's a fine stand in uh, because like, I, you know, I look at what I want to do in the future. There's no way I would want to do it alone. And I even find like having having a kind of a supportive community and people to bounce ideas off of, whether it's here or whether it's in uh, my own university community, like I'll, I'll pitch that idea all the time. I'll like, let's do a watch. 
on some documentary that we're not going to agree with. And, you know, let's have fun with it and let's, uh, you know, criticize it together. And I think um, obviously it's kind of trite to say that people are using their screens as a substitute for human interaction. But uh, you can get real human interaction through these screens. And I would say faux human interaction is like being on social media or watching other people's faces and mouths move uh, on YouTube. But like really connecting with people and looking at ideas and responding to those ideas and sharing new ideas is is a really it's proven to be for me in the last couple of years since I made my whole thing more um, interactive. Uh, it's it's been a great benefit. That's the big thing about the town halls as well. The interactivity, right. uh, they'd be able to see like even I know it's superficial, but some body language response. I can see people's sort of reactions to something that I say or someone else says. Also, when I participated recently in your community with some of those talks, just being, you know, we didn't agree on all those things, but the fact that like people were on the jump in and we're able to have like very meaningful and human discussions, I think is a really powerful, really powerful thing. So absolutely. Yeah. There's something else you said, but I think I'm running out my limit. I'm trying to remember. Uh, James, do you have anything you wanted to ask? Oh, you went off mute. No, I'll just I'll just jump in really quick on what uh, Brett was saying because uh, again, you know, kind of as uh, the baby of the group, oh. I guess, um, you know, because everybody else has been uh, doing this much longer than I have. Um, you know, my own mentality has seen uh, a dramatic benefit uh, just from being able to interact with other individuals and discuss ideas. You know, not not coming at it from the standpoint of you know, trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong and, and all of those sorts of things, but just, you know, putting the idea on the table and everybody turning it over to, to see what they can see from it. Um, you know, it's been a, an immense um, joy in my life to be able to do that because it was not something that I really had the opportunity to do previously. So, you know, when, when Brett is telling you that, you know, try out these things to, to see how they feel. Cause they might just add some value to your life. You know, he's, he's not sending you in a bad direction. So that's it also I want to add brings a good point up. Like the Rockfin chat does a great job at this. Um, every time I take a peek in the Rockfin chat, they are oh, Lord, they're commenting. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know this is kind of, I'm giving props to them. Usually I'm sort of presenting them in a sort of pejorative light, but no, this time I'm going to give props to Rockfin chat and to what Brett said. They present things very comically. They take what what's being presented and they sort of may, they may take it a little too far, but at least it is a good way to digest the information. <laughs> and at the same time, sharing a community, the fact that they're talking about the clips, even when they're not joking around, they're talking about the clips together. So it's much more palatable when you can view things together. I think that's one of the reasons why we were, uh, when I was helping out uh, Rich and his wife, that we could together, we were watching these things together. We're pausing the videos together. We're commenting on them. You know, it's not just like we're isolated and just allowing the, the total emotional toll to be taken from the viewing, whatever information is being, uh, being presented through that medium. Mark McDonald, which is one of the, the mass formation psychosis, he's part of like, I think the mass formation came from, I think Matthias Desmet, Mark McDonald talked about the, uh, uh, something about some universal psychosis. I forget what he called it specifically, but it's a combination of the Mark McDonald and Matthias Desmond. Mark McDonald makes this point about the importance of human contact, even if it's through a screen, but in real time, 
to Brett's point, like if you watch a moving mouth on YouTube pre-recorded later on, it doesn't have the same impact. But even if you can meet like-minded people, just remember, oh yeah, reality exists and like normal people exist. And like I can actually have meaningful discussion without a mask on. You know, I can like remember what it's like to actually have at least an idea of what real human interaction looks like. He said that's extremely powerful and extremely important and something he has been practicing himself being a psychiatrist out in LA that noticed that, you know, there's this sort of mass formation psychosis going on that has been very impactful for him and making sure because he was getting very depressed. And in his book that he recently released, he talked about some of the issues of that he was seeing in his clinical practice, like young children taking knives to other children, like like the violent reactions from young children um, from this like sort of isolation, um, including like isolation online and just like, uh, you know, obviously suicide, depression, the incalculable toll that'll be difficult to really provide, put a metric to, it won't emerge for probably a decade or two as to the total, the totality of how, how great that toll has been, you know, it's, uh, it's important to find some sort of, uh, restitution, some respite, some reprieve from, what we're experiencing now and whatever avenues that are made available to us to find that, you know, by all means you have to, you know, engage with it, I think is very important. So, but with that, let's see what we want to go to. I think I said cameo ideas. We can do that. We also have Jimmy Dorian. We can do something funny first. Uh, let's do, let's do this. Let's go ahead and play the, Steven Crowder clip talking about Barry Weiss's candor on the real time of Omar, about how she's, she's sick of this. She's a little sick of this. So I'm going to put that in yellow in there and we'll go to that and uh, we'll come back and have some commentary on that. Oops. Okay. This was on uh, this morning on CNN. So, you know, Barry Weiss was on uh, Bill Maher. Yeah. And Barry Weiss used to work with, uh, I believe, the New York Times and has had sort of an awakening, not really conservative, but uh, I guess you would call her a classical liberal. And she made some totally reasonable reasonable points on Bill Maher, uh, which, of course, was t- trending all over, yeah. all over this weekend uh, because people were furious where she was implying that, of course, with COVID, they don't really have the science at this point. And they're a negative. Rem- like I've always said, yeah. look, here's the thing with COVID. No one is saying that COVID isn't real. No one is saying that COVID doesn't suck for some people who get it. With everything in life, you have to weigh the risks and rewards, the pros and cons. Uh, This morning, though, on CNN, they brought on a doctor to uh, issue counterpoints to Barry Weiss's points. Dr. Uh Reiner uh, from George Washington University. And this is the beauty of, you know, when these people, uh, first off, we talked about these comedy shows. They don't do it live. Okay. Well, that's wonderful because they can edit anything Mm -hmm. to look favorable. But then also on places like uh, that's redundant. But then also, I apologize. It's the darkness that's gotten to my brain. (laughs) It's crept. Also on CNN or these programs, there's a beauty in uh, never being accountable where you can bring on people simply to straw man your opponents because they don't bring Barry Weiss on. In my opinion, if you are commenting on what Barry Weiss said on Bill Maher specifically, right, and you are CNN to do your job and be a journalist, you should have Barry Weiss on. Instead, they show a brief clip and then they bring a doctor on to address the points that she never made. Here's the most trusted name in news. I'm done with COVID. Oh, I'm done. It's yeah. like I I went so hard on COVID. I, yeah, I remember. sprayed the Pringles cans that I bought at the grocery store, stripped my clothes off because I thought COVID would be on my clothes. Like I did it all. And then we were told you get the vaccine. That was my You get the vaccine the and you get back to normal. And we haven't gotten back to normal. And it's really? ridiculous at this point. We have. This is going to be remembered by the younger generation 
as a catastrophic moral crime. The city of Flint, Michigan, which is 80 percent, I think, minority students, has just announced indefinite virtual schooling. Also known as a majority. In the past two years, we've seen among young girls a 51 percent increase in self-harm. People are killing themselves. They are anxious. They are depressed. They are lonely. That is why we need to end it. She uh, you know, ranted about how inconvenienced she's been no. by, by this pandemic and how it's not real anymore. Well, I'll tell you that for the 10,000 Americans who died last week and for their families, yeah, it was damn real. And for the people mm. who you know, struggled to keep them alive and for the thousands and thousands of healthcare workers who have been doing this nonstop for two years, her behavior was childish and, and selfish. Ah, okay. So th- you notice what she said? She said, look, we do have record number of, of, of teenage, specifically teenage girls. Yeah. They're self-harm. And of course, if you look into those statistics, all references available at lightofcredit.com. We have them below as well. We've done several episodes on this. There's been an increase yeah. in substance abuse. There's been an increase in hospitalization for alcoholism, way right? Up. Suicides way up. And he says, I think she's being childish because she's just talking about how she's been inconvenienced. She didn't discuss herself being inconvenienced at all. No. It was all about how other people are being destroyed by this, specifically the people that we say we sacrifice everything for, our children. Right. Right now, we're sacrificing them (laughs) to make ourselves feel better. Yeah. That's it, right? Why can schools be closed in one place and open in another place? We all deal with the same issues. We all have COVID spikes. We have Omicron that's kind of running around the country. It's fear. That's yeah. all. That's the only. No, but in, in Flint, they should stay home from school uh, and uh, drink the tap water. Yes. Get as much of that tap water yes, exactly. as possible. Also, I, this <laughs> is how silly political correctness is when we're talking about language. We're saying in, in Flint, where it's 80 percent because you can't just say black. Mm-hmm. You can't say brown. 80 percent minority. <laughs> Imagine if you read a poll. Well, a minority of Americans believe that Joe Bi- disapprove of Joe Biden's job on the economy. What's that minority? Eighty percent. I should note that the eighty percent is black. Eighty percent is not a minority. By any, why do we no, still no, no, say no. this? It's minorities. Weird, They're yeah. minorities. It's eighty percent minority. Not in Flint. That would be called a majority, sir. In Flint, you know who's a minority? Ginger Snap. Well, uh, Ginger Snap yeah. gets caught on the wrong block. No, nay. <laughs> On the right block. And he's not living through the day. I heard there's a big Swiss population there I might fit in. Ah, yes, 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 there's yeah. a big Swiss population. The knives and stuff. Yeah. They can just remain neutral. Of course. Watch Louder with Crowder live Monday through Thursday. This remain neutral. Gotta love how they try to spin that one. I love the red herring with uh, inconvenience. And then they attack her with an ad hominem. So, you know childish and inane imperial and all these sort of ridiculous concepts but speaking of ad hominems tony i have a question about that mm-hmm. cnn clip which is who was that vampire that was on the right <laughs> side of the screen right did anybody else notice that like did, did she need a blood pack like did somebody need to to take care of that before she passed like, out like I, I know my lighting is not not like perfect right it's probably really really bad but Wow. Like it's, I, you I ever see seen pictures of like Prince Charles. Charles? Like, no, before, like before you, I mean, am I thinking the right one? Let me bring it up real quick. Cause maybe it was, you're thinking son. of Philip. I'm thinking of Philip. That's it. Yeah, it's Charles is a son. Philip. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. He looks like a vampire from like right, right before when he passes. Oh, let's bring up a picture. LD, find a picture if you can. LD. Oh, wait a minute. Was he the one that wanted to be reincarnated as a virus? 
Yes. Mm-hmm. He, I believe, already has been. I think he died last year. <laughs> oh, so he's Omicron. Prince Omicron. Yeah. It's Prince Omicron. Yeah. He didn't, but he wanted to manifest more as like a more pernicious form of Delta. Well, maybe he's what got into those monkeys. Oh, and then, yeah. There we go. There, yes. Seldy's got it up. There's a good one. There's a good vampire pick. So it's all that baby's blood, you know. You know, I don't want to drag Crowder, but just uh, this should be pointed out. And I'm only saying this like out of curiosity. So the audio listeners might not have been able to tell, but when they cut from real time back to the CNN vampire panel, there there's a... um, you know, a flash in Crowder's video, meaning that there's something that happened either uh, like probably on real time and in the CNN panel before. So it wasn't just like Barry Weiss points out all of these misfortunes of people who are not her. And then the guy goes, yeah, well, she's just selfish. Like there's something in the middle and I'm just curious about what it was. So I saw that clip before the show, but I did not go and watch the CNN as people remember from our last segment, watching CNN is not good for you. So I didn't do it. Uh, but now I'm actually like really curious, like what they, they juxtapose these two clips together and what's in between, like how many minutes is that? Is it 30 seconds? Is it three minutes? I'm, I'm just curious. Well, I'd like to see how they did the transition. Sorry, Danny, go ahead. uh, I watched the bill, the full, clip from the bill maher show a couple days ago it's been Mm -hmm. a couple days like i say so i could be mixing stuff up but for sure immediately after that cut in the actual sequence uh as she's saying oh we all stripped our clothes off we all sprayed our groceries and this bill maher was saying no we didn't we didn't all do that so they might have just been trying to pull out like where he was kind of saying something that wasn't totally relevant uh but i don't know if they said anything after that but from what I recall, it was what they cut was probably only just a couple of seconds of Bill Maher saying, no, not everybody. But Brett's talking about, I think, but, the cut during the CNN clip, right? Itself. Because well, normally, cut, yeah. what is Crowder cut? What is Crowder cut to make that stark contrast between what Barry Weiss is actually saying? It's just there's so much curiosity oh, from okay. this stuff. So, first yeah. of all, what like. Yeah. H- how do they transition out of it on CNN? Because she's like, yeah, we were washing Pringles cans and stuff. Mm-hmm. But what I'm more concerned about is what is what is Crowder cut out of it? Uh, what is Crowder cut out of it? And how does CNN work that transition? But also when you see the clip from real uh, real time with Bill Maher, they're playing that on CNN. Right. There's a CNN Chiron at the bottom. So they're playing that whole thing. I'm like, why are they playing all this damning information about the stuff they support? They could they could hack Barry Weiss down with a lot less of the clip than this. So why are they why are they playing all this? And how do they walk away to just make it about Barry Weiss is selfish because she had to wash a Pringles can in April of 2020? She was inconvenienced. And actually, she stated some actual facts related to suicides and, you know, children and depression and all these sorts of things. There's also um, the issue here is the fallacy called excerpt lifting, where you take an excerpt, you can do you can do this with media, you can cut it in such a way where you take it out of context. I'm not saying Crowder did that. They could have been so much that he they they cut it because it was a superfluous and a lot of times, crowd they'd usually do a decent job based on my understanding of having watched them for so long um, in the past, especially um, of cutting out irrelevant material. Like, he does that a lot with himself because they go on these long, like, 
rancorous diatribes just making fun of shit right and so they'll cut that out for their smaller clips but i wonder what and now you bring that up it's a fantastic point i wonder what else was potentially said because in a way he might have excerpt lifted and you know usually what cnn does which is like do those quick cuts out of context didn't happen because they showed a lot of more damning evidence so it's just a weird sort of contrasting juxtaposition, if you will, between yeah. the two, um, where then he sort of positions himself as being sort of the morally righteous, which normally I, I agree with Crowder in a lot of these instances, but that's a very good observation. I didn't quite notice. I did notice the cut earlier on with Crowder, but I figured they probably wanted one of his like, you know, sort of comedy diatribes when so they they had a, he had a quick cut early on, but I didn't notice that during the CNN clip. Good eye. Well, okay. So but first of all, I'm not saying that like if some CNN hater watches CNN for an hour and does like a super cut of the five minutes of dumbest stuff, and then you go and find the whole hour and watch it and go, oh, this is totally different. That guy was unfair to CNN. I'm sure it's just as dumb. I, I but <laughs> yeah, what I'm, I'm saying, much agreed there. Yeah. What what I'm interested in is like how CNN does the transition, and then I guess an interest that stems from that is does it even matter? Like people are just there to have their biases confirmed. So it's like uh, here we're going to show a clip from Bill Maher where a bad person talks for a few minutes and then we're going to do commentary on what the bad person said and they just buy it. It doesn't matter what the person says. They're bad. I mean, how easy is that to do? We see uh, the first thing they do with anybody who's, uh, you know, not on their song sheet is character assassination is ad hominem attack so it almost doesn't like once you know somebody is bad like joe rogan is bad yeah. joe rogan gave a platform to gavin mcginnis in 2016 so how could he be good cnn viewer you know so it doesn't matter what the content is after that and that was the first thing i noticed when i saw how expansive the barry weiss clip was because like why would cnn include all this they could have just done the pringles can thing and they bring on a supposed expert, right? With all the uh, the, the ethos to back him supposedly up. And that's another sort of like little trick they do with advaricundium. It's a subtle psychological subversive technique to introduce an advaricundium or appeal to authority fallacy, even though he's not talking about any sort of evidence that's being brought up that she's alluding to. Uh, even though it's more general, she's not alluding to specific studies. She said, look, there's a rise in suicide. There's a rise in depression, there's a rise in alcohol use. There's a rise in these sorts of things. And, you know, they say, get the vaccine and things would go back to normal. And they did that. We could show a montage of clips of news stations or mainstream news stating that. And all of a sudden, no, we're back to masks. We're depending on the state you live in or the country. You're back to lockdowns. You have to get your third shot, maybe your booster. And so, yeah, there's all these elements here that she brought up that, you know, she he didn't contest her on. He's just saying like, well, for the 2000 that died, but we know that's highly contrived because did they die with or from COVID? How, what were their age? What were the comorbidities? There's all these cofactors, all these attributes that would change the narrative. If you actually dive into this, the, 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 the sample size of the studies they're, you know, promoting there, but. Well, it's also an interesting choice for Crowder to have picked that particular clip. Cause if you noticed in it on the CNN, uh, uh, bottom of the screen, whatever you call that thing. Uh, it said it was like 7.30 a.m. Eastern time, very early in the morning. Most people probably aren't watching CNN at that time. So I just looked it up and that same doctor apparently was making appearances on CNN throughout the rest of the day. So there was the chance of, there is the chance rather that his presentation of his quote unquote argument against Barry Weiss in this particular case may have altered throughout the day. So mm-hmm. I wondered if there may be Perhaps Crowder deliberately chose the one that made 
the CNN case look the worst. That's potential. Uh, but then again, also, it could be that there's far more to be mined here insofar as how they're spinning this narrative. I would deduce they run their show. So from my understanding, according to Crowder's production or the way they run it, is that uh, he goes live around 10 central, 10 or okay. 11 central. And so they have CNN streaming in the morning. And a lot of times they'll actually prioritize clips they see in the morning in the studio um, as part of it. So I imagine they probably saw it. And it's like, oh, add that like we like we do before the show, add it to the show card sort of thing, add it to the show. Now, I'm just speculating, um, but that would be sort of what I would deduce from that is that they probably added it as a quick ad from something they saw earlier that morning or maybe, but if it was not the same day. If it's not concomitant or contemporaneous, I should say, then yeah, you're right. There could be something more like they just, he did, he picked the one that made him look the worst to sort of right. make fun of it. Yeah. Well, it would make sense that, you know, if they go early, that's the one they would have picked. I'm just curious if, as the day goes on and more viewers pour into CNN, if they continued to play the whole clip of Barry Weiss spouting oh, off point. all the facts, or if they just, you know, they did that in the morning test run and then cut it off at the end of the day. I don't know. That's well all said. speculative over here. It's interesting. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's that. lots of good points that, that you guys have, uh, have brought to the table here. Um, it, I don't know. From my point of view, it was just very poor, uh, very poor production from CNN. Um, because again, anybody who has a couple of brain cells to rub together uh, is going to be able to look at the the argument that CNN was presenting and basically just dismiss it outright because they're they're not actually addressing uh, any of the points that were presented uh, by Barry Weiss. And that's in, what causes fouls in her appearance. When you don't address the points, when you, you try to sort of misdirect from the points, that's, that's what yeah. a fallacy really is. Well, right? maybe that's, that's why simple. their viewership is down 90%. And why Joe Rogan as an audience of like what, 11 million or something and is killing the mainstream media is the largest podcast I think in the world. And he you know, specializes in specializes in long form conversations, which I agree with Peterson. Mm -hmm. I think people are starving and have been, hence why he's risen to the prominence he has in the podcasting world, because he started out talking about MMA and psychedelics in like an extra room in his house, just having like conversations we're having now with like the bros, you know, oh, I got the bros over. Let's like do a podcast. Now, granted, obviously he has significant influence because he's a comedian and he was a former MMA or I don't know if he, I know he did, you know, martial arts. I don't know if he didn't do MMA, but he commented was a commentator for MMA and still is. And so, you know, um, he just, and I obviously was in production world as well. He's, you know, he got his big gig with what was that fear factory or fear factor. Yeah. yeah fear and factor. before that he was, he was on the excellent news radio. God, I missed that show. <laughs> See, but that, so he had like, he had notoriety, but then all he did was get on camera. It's sort of the way we're doing it now. And just, talk shit with the bros you know it was uh and that you know sort of precipitated in the the situation he's in now where he's like well more then he started having sit downs with interesting people you know and then all of a sudden like we have a, a former colleague of ours uh actually have a sit had to sit down with him and have a very interesting conversation a long time ago and then it just blew up and then more and more interesting more people with more clout and sort of notoriety in society you know Got he gave them the platform, and especially for some alternative ideas, even around aliens and stuff, or like the Graham Hancock's Randall Carlson's talking about you know cataclysmic disaster and previous potential for earlier civilization, all these more interesting and sort of out there ideas. But you know he's he allowed a platform for it, just like he did with Peter McCullough and Robert Malone recently. Which now there's uh, Joni Mitchell, I guess, came out now and saying uh, she wants her <laughs> music removed from Spotify. So it's just. Uh, 
you know, they're all committing Spotify seppuku. And, Spotify you know, needs a uh, a new app to explain to the average Spotify users who the people are pulling their music off Spotify. I think. <laughs> I was just thinking. Oh, that's funny. Neil Young, Joni Mitchell. It's like you know. Again, we're back to this boomer thing. Is there a pattern? Yeah, reports are Barry Manilow uh, has even uh, joined in the crowd, and I know that we're all heartbroken uh, that his music will no longer be available on Spotify. Why does Kanye West? Kanye West should just say, "If anything happens to Joe Rogan, I'm pulling my music off Spotify." Solved. That's right. All said. Is this a, is this an example of uh, uh, what's it, the bystander effect happening, but only on one side? And people familiar with that idea, where it's just like you know, there someone now has stood up. Neil Young on the other side said, "No, I want my music removed." And a bunch of artists, but so far the artists have been much older. <laughs> no surprise there but um you know if there's a counter to that like a kanye west that would be huge because that would stop it immediately equal and opposite reactions well as i say about many things if not kanye then who <laughs> <laughs> oh a little bit of levity my god i love it if not kanye but who is very true next clip uh let's think here what do we want to you guys have any out of the clips I've picked any interest? So we have the grift is over. Paul Joseph Watson satirically pointing out the lockdown grift, especially in the UK. Brett and Heather. Well, that might, you- yeah, that might actually be a good transition uh, after the Barry Weiss thing. Cause I think that speaks to a lot of the, the narrative shift that is happening, which uh, unfortunately I think uh, that her appearance on Bill Maher, uh, you know, has a lot to do with that. Um, I know I I tend to have a lot of unpopular opinions when it comes to people appearing on shows, especially recently. Uh, But I'm not 100 percent convinced that the uh, the story that was being woven uh, on uh, real time was uh, 100 percent genuine. So. I can see. Yeah, I feel you in that one. Well, it's also a lot of times they'll present as though they're and they may be honest. Barry Weiss is probably being honest about her sort of disposition around it potentially, but then what solution? I love when they get to the solution because that's where it's like, Oh, we just need more government to like, yeah. Fix oh, it. well, that's, yeah. Her solution was, it just needs to be over, you know, it needs to be over. That's a simple one. Yeah. Right here, the Davos group anyways. Okay. Let's, <laughs> let's go to <laughs> Paul Joseph Watson talking about the grift is over for lockdown nerds. Short clip, short clip. This should be fun. Well, according to the WHO's Hans Kluger, in terms of the pandemic, Europe is moving towards the end game. No, don't say that. Technocrats going to be big mad. Over the past two years, a deluge of control freaks who would otherwise have remained obscure nerds have enjoyed the bright lights, prestige and financial bounty of regular TV appearances and media exposure. But the party appears to be coming to an end. The grift is over. And many of them aren't going to take it very well. The Times published an interesting article over the weekend. Warring scientists fight on as Omicron retreats. The piece quotes Professor Alison Pollock, Professor of Public Health at Newcastle University. She makes reference to members of the independent SAGE group of scientists. A group that has been consistently even more pessimistic than SAGE itself. Even after SAGE's prediction of 6,000 Omicron deaths a day if further restrictions weren't imposed proved to be 
once again, spectacularly wrong, Independent Sage is still insisting that the government refrain from lifting the remaining measures on Thursday. Pollock, who quit Independent Sage in response to their disastrous and insane zero-Covid policy, one which this galaxy brain in New Zealand is still pursuing, by the way, makes the point that for the doom-mongers, pessimistic proclamations about the virus went hand-in-hand with sustained, lucrative TV appearances. There are some scientists who have absolutely loved being media stars for the first time, and they don't want it to stop. We don't hear as much from the paediatricians, disease physicians, academic virologists, and immunologists who really know about these things. Paul Hunter, professor of medicine at the University of East Anglia, said many prominent COVID voices have never written papers on infectious diseases. It's like me deciding, I did a course on health and economics a year ago. Maybe I should set up a group advising the Chancellor on how to manage the tax system. So why were such voices amplified by the media? Why were the likes of Professor Sinetra Gupta and Professor Carl Hennigan silenced, ignored and smeared? Because the television media drunk the lockdown Kool-Aid. Their entire grift was predicated on keeping the British public terrified, cowering inside their homes, awaiting their daily dose of fear porn from BBC. News, Sky News, ITN. Ratings and clicks. Ratings and clicks. So of course they're going to amplify and make media stars out of the most ardent, scaremongering lockdown advocates. No matter how many times they were catastrophically wrong. And no matter the weight of the devastation that this has inflicted on our society. You know, I remember saying early on, I think the original predictions, now the SAGE system was in uh, the UK, um, but we had a similar modeling, obviously, um, in the United States. I think they said something like when we did the initial lockdowns, potential for 200,000 deaths, either during that first two-week period or a day. So something like insane amount of people. I forget which one it was, but I do remember talking to my friends about this saying like, well, they're right. The next two weeks should be a bloodbath and nothing happens nothing happened. Um, what is it about these, uh, Neil Ferguson, the epidemiologist that was used as part of the SAGE modeling system in like the UK that, uh, we took a lot of, I think our sort of initial references from on how to model, uh, a potential pandemic outbreak, like why, you know, and still, they're still using his model 6,000 deaths a day from Omicron when the South Africans, uh, epidemiologists that first, uh, understood its existence, said it was mild by comparison to Delta, 6,000 deaths a day. I mean, it's like, it's almost, it's like the classic issue, the sort of positivist mathematics where you can like, you can do these exponential growth curves. You can sort of do these like very complex prob- probabilistic modeling systems. And like based on one specific condition, that's usually highly contrived. You can justify this whole getting crazy sort of modeling of how it'll extrapolate out to the future. But the problem is, if you don't get the initial conditions right, the model itself is going to fall apart. You know, that's the the foundation is shaky to begin with. And so I just, the fact they continue it, it, even if it was just complete incompetence, boy, it makes it very easy to look and say, man, there must be something more going on. <laughs> because why else? You know, well, I can't help, point, like Tony. my mind goes that way. Go, yeah, good. Yeah, to that point, if it was just complete incompetence, then we should be able to do a very basic investigation and discover that. Like that that should be evident after after, you know, literally a simple investigation. Like if we do that investigation and 
what we collect doesn't point to incompetence, well, then we have to start looking at other solutions to this equation, right? Yeah, no, I mean, that's well said. I mean, the fact they also keep using the same modeling system, they use the same epidemiologist over and over again, even though his predictions are so wildly inaccurate. It's like, you know, it really does beg the question and not the the fallacy of beg the question, but really uh, beg the question in the sense of like, what else might be going, what might be we be missing in this equation to your point as to what other evidence might be available as to what, who profits, you know, obviously the mainstream media, for example, gets viewership from the fear porn. They're also controlled, well, not say controlled, but they have heavy influence by big pharmaceutical companies in the form of advertising. Um, you know, there's, I remember at one point, we played a clip. I think this came from Dell. It wasn't Dell, but Dell Big Trees played the clip. It was, you know, he was playing a clip that was going around. It was essentially someone, it was a hospital director talking about how they need to ramp up the fear and get more people scared, more people, you know, the COVID, even though COVID numbers were dropping in the hospital, the marketing department in the hospital said COVID numbers are dropping. Like, well, we got to ramp up the fear. We got to ramp up the fear. We got Why? It's like, well, well, you know, I always say from an economic standpoint, people are going to respond to incentives. The hospitals can't do out the elective surgeries anymore, outpatient surgeries, these sorts of things where they make a lar- large portion of their money. And, uh, you know, they make a lot of money right now being subsidized by uh, the government in regards to having someone hospitalized for COVID, whether they die from it or not, just being hospitalized. And then there's a whole incentive structure with the th- therapeutics they allow in within a hospital setting is set up. And you can start to see, again, I, I like to tie back to economics. And I'm like, it just makes it, people are going to respond to those incentives and the hospitals are in a situation where they need to make money. They got to make money some way. Um, and they certainly will. But what do you guys think? What's going on with that? Well, I mean, as far as the the responding to incentives, I mean, that's kind of the the part of of the tyranny of metrics, right? Uh, mm-hmm. the the whole idea of the the managerial class is going to direct the action of those underneath them uh, through those incentives. And most often in our world, because of the system that we operate in, that's gonna that's gonna equal money. Um, so yeah, I I, I like the tyranny want, of metrics. That's a good that's a good yeah. point. Yeah. I, I mean it it's also really selling prophecies too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you just like you were saying with the modeling, you set it up to give you the the outcome that you desire in order to create the the perception uh that you want created. Also, does anyone else else have any ideas around that? I agree though. I was just thinking, do you guys remember covidactnow.org? It was a site that no. they were watching when... <laughs> this is, hold on, Brett. Hold on. Does it still exist? Yes, it does. Okay. I was um, going to say, okay. should we get an archive of it, maybe? An archive of it would be a hoot. Because LD, could you find an archive of this going back to maybe March of 2020? So if anybody is watching along and they want to look, I, I, I could share screens too in a second here. It's called yeah, yeah. Now.org. Now, this was a site that we were actually watching in the Discord when we had the COVID Discord uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, oh, I remember that one. Yeah, yep. yeah. We all share. Yeah, totally. Yeah. We had so, some town halls. Joshua was running town halls back then just trying to figure it out. No one knew what the fuck. That morphed into the Grand Theft World discord so it's the same one if you uh right. oh shit 
So this was a website that we were, this was a website that we were all looking at at the time, or many of us were looking at at the time that kind of showed what was happening. And I remember Joshua was in the state that was basically hit first and the nursing homes there were hit hard. So we were on the Eastern part of the country saying, you know, what's happening there. And this was a state by state, uh, modeling software that's basically like here's the date your hospitals overload uh and again the website if anyone wants to check it out is covidactnow.org they have uh transferred over just to vaccination progress at this point they do still have uh risk levels so i'm just visiting oh, this is fantastic uh was again say that uh covidactnow.org covidactnow.org ld see if you can find some interesting like archives or timestamps of that and uh, the way back machine or, or like system uh, around well, maybe like how, march how 2020 far? april like okay. april yeah. or march of 2020 would be what i would look for april or march of 2020 april actually we can do march through may march through june because that's the early narrative long before the vaccine or any therapeutics ex- existed well hydroxychloroquine did but orange man bad said it, so right so this is uh, what it what it had was basically it, it was tracking cases best they could, whatever that means. And then it would be like, all right, if you lock, if you do uh, this kind of restriction, this is when your hospitals overload. If you do this more draconian uh, uh, restriction, this is when your hospitals overload buys you an extra six weeks. Or if you do full Wuhan style, like well door shut type stuff. Uh, you get all the way to June before your hospitals overload. That was that was basically. I mean, I'm cartoonifying a little bit, but that was basically uh, how the site was laid out. And I think they did at least state by state, maybe county by county. I see that now. Uh, it's interesting where they'll color code the states based on uh, percentage of the population vaccinated, but you mm-hmm. can also switch to a county map, and that looks much different. This is oh, a really funny thing to look at because. If you look at the uh, the vaccination map at the very top, you know, you get all these different states with various levels of vaccination progress, as they call it. Some are, you know, highly vaccinated. Others are more moderately vaccinated and some have low vaccination. But if you scroll down below that map, you get a risk level map. And except for Maryland, Puerto Rico and Idaho, the entire country is exactly the same risk level, which is extremely <laughs> high. Of course, that's so, what I'm talking about, the self-fulfilling prophecy. You right. always continue to throw around. It's like, well, they've, they've prescriptively stated the, the issue and now they have to make all the data fit into it. And that's sort of what's going on. I love those positive mo- positivist models, not because they're ever right, but because it just shows the inadequacy of positivism as an intellectual philosophy. So, And most people who hear these kinds of predictions on the news aren't going to remember the specific number. They're just going to remember high number. And so then it doesn't really matter if the prediction is ever met. They just know, well, a bunch of they said a bunch of people were going to die and then a bunch of people did. And so they were right, basically. Actually, that's a great point, because early on, um, actually, no, this was a year into it. We're now in 2021. I want to say June or July. And I think it was Paul Joseph Watson again, who actually did a couple of productions on this, stating that there are polls that have been conducted showing that a majority, not a majority, but a large minority of people, I forget the numbers. We should try to find those videos. Actually, I'll go back and look while we play another one of 
people believing that millions and millions have already died specifically mm-hmm. of like COVID. And like it was a, some, some insane number. I have to go back and look, but it's, there's a lot of people I sort of bought into your point. They don't know the numbers. They know it's a lot. So they're like, Oh, millions and millions of people. And it's like, no, you know, your chance of survival if you're under 50 is like 99.97%. Like and it's not that serious. It, it typically acts more like a quarter or flu. Some do get hit hard. You'll still live. Maybe have some long COVID, but you'll get over that even, you know, it's, uh, but people had no idea. People just know that at least one football stadium's worth of people have died because that's how we measure quantities in this country. Yeah, football and we use the PCR, Yeah, football stadiums. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this championship Sunday, after all. But uh... I found five safe counties. If you go to the risk the risk levels map and you switch from states to counties, can you share it real quick? Do you have the? No, I'm going to share screens yeah. really quickly. Hold on one sec. All right. So it looks like you've got one in Nebraska, one in Iowa, and three in Texas in the contiguous 48 here. So Alaska. Well, so well, Texas has Alaska. Okay. So the, no one probably lives in that southern portion of Alaska. You know, I, I have no people that were in college that thought Alaska was an island, non sequitur, but like that's, they thought it was like an island off the south coast of like New Mexico there. Why does that not surprise me? Yeah. And they were, by the way, the one was in school for pharma, become like a pharmaceutical dispenser or whatever, pharmacist. So that was a rich tapestry, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) This is what Danny was talking about when he, when he said uh, the states. (laughs) Okay. So then this is um, vaccination progress for anyone who hasn't checked this out yet. And you go to counties and you see that the more rural areas are. uh, Wow. Yeah. Now there are places that are just, all the way in, like no matter what county you go to, they're, they're northeast. In. Yeah, no exactly. No surprise. And of course, it's yeah. That's still that's crazy. Senate has sent me something here. Act now, uh, the Act Now Coalition. Um, which we have to do a tiny deep dive on that. I'll look into that. But Act Now is a UN initiative, apparently. So it's part of you know sort of broader UN initiatives to make sure they have sort of a consistent uh, framing of the narrative across. Uh, nation states act now united nations okay thank you son i'll check this out so that's me just I'll, let me bring this up let me just share this with time so get a little bit late i want to get at least some more clip in but so it's part of this act now the un campaign for individual action make this a little bigger to preserve a livable climate are you sure this is the same this is part of the act now wow wall so <laughs> I mean, the meme generator of the simulation we are experiencing mm-hmm. called life. My God. To preserve a livable climate, greenhouse gas emissions must be reduced to net zero by 2050. Bold, fast, and wide-ranging action needs to be taken by governments and businesses. But the transition to a low-carbon world also requires the participation of citizens, especially in advanced economies. Act now is the United Nations campaign for individual action on climate change and sustainability. So this is the part of the same organization. Okay. Act now coalition. Interesting. Uh, nice. I like how they have the sense of urgency built into the name of the coalition. That is that is fantastic marketing. Yeah, and Senna uh, posted a link in that chat as well. It says uh, it's actnowcoalition.org slash hashtag our dash projects. And uh, oh, indeed, nice. under our projects, hold on one sec. Under our projects, the COVID Act now is listed. But under our partners, we've got Stanford Medicine, Unilever, IBM, CDPH Public Health, 
Harvard, Georgetown University, General Mills, Army, all this stuff. So, yeah, if you scroll up, I believe. Oh, the there World it is. Economic yeah. Forum. Okay, so people can see this. Our partners, Stanford Medicine, Unilever, IBM, Harvard, yeah, Army National Guard, General Mills, uh, Georgetown. Products. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They're, they're all World Economic Forum partners anyway, so they're on board. <laughs> strategic. Many of them are probably strategic partners, which are the difference of There's the partners, and then there's the strategic, there's the special. Windmills. Windmills. Dude, look <laughs> Those at this. work. This will, uh, you know, they worked really well in Texas last year. I heard they look nice. Yeah. The, <laughs> the birds think the same thing. They love them. <laughs> Wait until you have to just bury them in the ground and then it's, uh, it's all not over. so good. Did you find anything by the way with those, uh, in the way back machine? Oh, they, well, I brought it up on screen, but it, it didn't, Continue. I went back to March of 2020 and it wasn't functioning. Um, uh, what a surprise. Like, like the, the, the current, site seems to all good all good we'll have to take a look into that more that's a fantastic uh shout out there brett because i was not aware of that website probably was like i've probably been on it but i just totally forgot its existence which is along the lines of what daniel was saying it's like big number yeah in our early meetings in the, in the covid discord back in uh, march and april of 2020 we were we were talking about it quite a bit i remember let's see here but uh, yeah, this is uh, it's interesting to see how contrived these statistical modeling uh, situations actually are. And what's scary is how much that has extrapolated into the public consciousness. It's almost like it's, I mean, we know, okay, the UK was using um, psychological warfare techniques on this population that came out. We know it was to being done in Canada. In fact, Canada wasn't just using psychological warfare techniques. They were literally tracking thousands and tens of thousands of phones without people knowing about it. Well, what they're texting in regards to, you know, the COVID narrative. So I, some part of me is like, how much of this is just a test? How much can we get away with just not, you know, they, they always hear about this concept of the post-truth world, which I think is a little bit overstated, but that people aren't really reacting to truth. They're reacting to sort of the, the emotional response of the camp you're in. That's the cybernetic feedback concept that is really pernicious and quite scary because that just goes along with them. They're not modeling a virus. They're modeling us. Mm-hmm. That's what they're yeah. doing. I think you're, you're closer to the truth on that than you might realize, Tony, because that same thought has been in my mind for several months now. Um, and that's the, there, there's a lot of manipulation that's going on and the, the driving force behind pretty much all of it is data generation. Data, yeah. Yeah. Oh, in a simpler version of that, I think it was Michael Malice who said something like at the end of 2020, uh, you know, this year, the worst people in the world learned a lot about what the average person will put up with. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well yeah. said. That's extremely well said. So yeah. I did a series on my podcast in 2020. Tony actually participated in the finale episode. It was the series was called This is a Test. And I oh, couldn't man. get that idea out of my head that this is uh, some kind of a trial run of something. And, you know, I hate to get dark and cynical here, but uh, I, if there's three people whose, you know, views I'm interested in on this, this kind of speculation. It's like with everything we know about the very likely like lab origin of the virus, 
um, the the um, genetic code inserted into something. What do they call that? The fern cleavage site. Yeah, fern cleavage. Uh, yeah. So and like this this massive propaganda um, campaign towards certain procedures. Like, how do they eventually make people like us eat shit on this? Right. Because I, I, that's another thing that I've said to people in my world the whole time is like, why don't we be careful about our victory laps? Like, oh, Fauci doesn't know what he's talking about. The CDC was wrong. The WHO was wrong again. And so it's like victory, victory, victory lap. Uh, maybe a day comes and, and it doesn't. There's so much narrative control, again, on the people who are always going to be down for, for whatever happens uh, and whoever they're told the bad guys are. They're never going to question any of it. But um <clears throat> In the whole perception management aspect of this, one thing that has always just left me feeling unsettled is um, how do they eventually, when we look at the, the full spectrum dominance of this of this situation, um, assuming such, right? Because I don't think, like, there, there's lots of positive things to look at. And and with the whole like that group in the middle mobilizing and maybe starting to wake up and maybe starting to ask questions and maybe starting to actually do something uh, productive in a in a dissonant way here. Um, I don't I don't want to portray the situation as hopeless, but considering there are some very, very powerful people involved in what's going on here, um, has anybody had a meaningful exploratory conversation about like, all right, well, What's the next? We see the narrative, and I, I think you guys have probably talked about this for a few weeks on the show now. We see that the narrative is starting to change a little bit. So that was the title of last week's show. Yeah. Yeah. Change, yeah. How do they how do they come back for people like us? You know, and I just I just think it's an interesting question, and I don't expect people to have answers to that. I guess what I'm asking is how much discussion or exploration of that possibility has there been that I might not know about? I'll just throw this out there. They're not going to do it with evidence. I don't right. think they're going to do it with evidence. That's the most, so sometimes I think one of the problems is we take victory laps when there is no victory. Like they're like the, the Fauci contradicting himself, the WHO contradicting itself, the CDC contradicting itself. Isn't necessarily a victory. You know why? Because most people are still going along with that mass formation. So in what, in what capacity can we say that's a victory? Because we, Brett, you and I know this because we tried it for now over a decade. You can't just use facts and reason, unfortunately, to sort of change the hearts and minds of individuals. Like, yeah, you like you need that element there too, but it's something deeper than that. It's something more on sort of a um, on the soul level, on the spiritual level, on whatever what psycho psychological level, whatever terminology you want to use. There's something that holds people back from really being able to understand, integrate and make change, actionable change based on evidence that actually exists. And there's so much contradictory evidence out there. You can almost find uh, as my buddy of mine who works in the hard sciences said, you can find anything you, you can find a study from us, anything you want to prove at this point. It doesn't mean that, 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 that makes that knowledge or truth is relative. It just means you really have to then dive into the study and understand how it's conducted and, you know, juxtapose that to methodologies. And it really, no one has the time to do all that. And we aren't trained necessarily in the nuances of being able to critique that sort of analysis. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, you know, I think we're the one, when you talk about victory laps, I just, I pause and say, yes, in the alternative media, oftentimes we do, we take these victory laps, but to me, like that's wrong because there's no victory lap to be had. Mm -hmm. Like it's almost like us congratulating ourselves on being right about something that's obvious. 
Right. It's like, oh, the sun's going to rise. Look, I'm right. See, it's like, dude, the sun rises every, like, that's what, that's just normal. The the pension, or, I'm sorry, go, go ahead, Brett. Just real quick, this. Danny. Uh, yeah. So a real world example of what I was kind of uh, wondering about is I had a conversation with somebody recently and they threw the whole like, well, everybody who's dying is unvaccinated, you know? And I said, <laughs> okay, well, assuming that's true then this is essentially biological warfare against people who require longitudinal studies before they do experimental medical procedures, right? Uh, if, if the people who've, who've taken this can still get it, spread it, you know, then those who are holding out for like, well, you know, I'd like to see what happens over the course of a couple of years, at the very least a flu season, you know, um, then if that, if that does translate to greater risk for those people, uh, that's essentially what we're looking at, which is a, now there's a lot of speculation in that, but that's, that's just kind of what I'm talking about is that like sooner or later, there must be a way to punish the, uh, like really punish the disobedient. And I can't get that idea out of my mind, but yeah, go ahead, Danny. I was interested in what you had to say. Well, I just, on the point of the victory laps, I don't know that this isn't really much of an answer to any question so much as it is just an observation of a potential course of action that may be worth taking, considering that there is this impetus. It's probably just human nature to, when you see something that you've predicted come to pass, you want to, you know, shout it from the rooftops. Hey, we were right. We called it to take your victory lap. And I don't know that this is like planned or anything. But it could be. But as we see the narrative shift away from COVID and people are starting to break down and say, look, we're kind of done with this and things like this, like we saw with Bill Maher, uh, among others. I imagine that the reaction by a lot of people sort of on our side of things is going to be like, well, see, look, we were right all along. Uh, the COVID wasn't that big of a deal. Look, we're able to go back to normal, blah, blah, blah. And then we all just sort of retire back. It, either we're busy taking victory laps or we retire back and sort of go back to normal until whatever this was a test for comes to pass. So people are talking about like the pivot to climate, for example, uh, or, you know, for all we know, there could be monkeypox. you know, whatever sort of narrative they want to throw at us next. If we're busy taking victory laps, we're not going to be able to respond. And more importantly, all of the people who are caught in that uh, crucial middle that we were talking about earlier, they're very likely to just get caught right back up into the new narrative. So oh, I would totally. say yeah. the, the thing that is left for us to do rather than take a victory lap, again, don't know how successful this will be. Maybe it would be an absolute failure. But as we go back, maybe potentially just for a little bit back to the old normal, hopefully, Take that temporary respite that we have made available to us to go out and take advantage of the fact that many people will no longer be so emotionally charged by COVID. You see, part of the problem with reaching out to people on a rational level is that their emotions are getting in the way of that emo uh, rational reach out because COVID was so intense and so immediate and urgent that we don't have time to sit and have a conversation. My grandma's going to die. But if COVID takes a back seat, in the sort of mainstream narrative, that might be an opportunity to actually reach out and say, hey, you know, do you ever notice like two years ago they said this and then this happened? Do you ever notice, isn't that funny? And just kind of try 
to pick out people who are actually open to this sort of thing plant and connect seeds. thing plant seeds you know while the season well it's the season for it because i'm sure there's right. gonna be a new narrative and mm-hmm. maybe we'll be able to get just a couple more people i don't know what do you guys think about and this is dark but this is just a continuation this is like them understanding stockholm syndrome very well a little bit of carrot and stick a little bit of like you know we'll we'll reel back the narrative for a little while then boom we'll we'll thrust it on them when they least expect it again new major very i mean i don't know i just that's where my mind goes for some reason i'm like you know is this they they know these behavioral patterns that we wasn't that a mk ultra thing where they'd like starve you and then they'd give you a banquet and then they'd starve you again. And it's all about playing the extremes. Yes. The super extremes. And then what you do is you end up loving and looking forward to that sort of servitude. Um, Yeah. It's in Marilu's rape of the mind too. that idea of the waves that it hits you in waves. Yes. Very similar to what you're talking about. Sorry, James, go ahead. Well, I was just going to going to point out that one of the things that we haven't touched on yet about this this situation and this reprieve that seems to be uh, manifesting is that the emergency powers that were granted to various governments around the world are not being repealed. Yeah, we have governments coming out and saying, all right, all right, we're we're not going to do the forced vaccinations. We're not going to do the. Uh, the mask mandates, you know, we're we're going to speak. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the powers that they have granted themselves aren't going anywhere. They're still on the books and they can recall them at any moment. Yes. So, I mean, there's, uh, you know, all these, all these things are, are going to come to a head at some point and, and kind of to your original question, Brett, I don't know that there's really anything that they need to uh, come back around to us for. Uh, because the the whole technocratic control system that they're trying to put into place is designed specifically to exclude the disobedient. Mm, very good point. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, back well, to the so. victory laps idea, like I'm a huge fan of I was right all along. It's super gratifying, uh, but other people are into that too. And now we have this kind of narrative template where people are so assured uh, and have been for a long time that they were on the smart and responsible side of this, right? Uh, an inconvenient truth that was what twenty years ago, and uh, you know a certain kind of politic aligned with uh, a certain kind of scientism, and it's just continued to spin out of control uh, since then, and it's infected pop culture. Uh, you know, a big part of the reason we're here is because people thought Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye were cool, you know, and and they weren't. Uh, But but what I'm what I'm saying is in in narrative templates like, yeah, say Danny is right and we get some return to normal and we have a seed planting season. As soon as the next thing happens and it hits hard and sudden like this one did, if it does, it's all about like these. These are the the disobedient people who were responsible for the empty grocery store shelves because they shirked their responsibilities and drove to the capital of Canada. These are the people who wouldn't listen to the scientists and didn't get vaccinated and prolonged the the last pandemic because they didn't like everything is already in place as far as like a narrative template is concerned. So, yes, the idea like when when they uh, started uh, like wargaming a cyber pandemic. Like, yeah, it had the word pandemic in it, but I was like, how are they going to divide people? I didn't I didn't get it at first. Like, how are they going to divide people over this? You know, I mean, I'm sure there's a way because I mean, geez, there was three or four weeks when I didn't know how it was going to happen with COVID. 
back in 2020. I figured it out pretty quickly, but um, I think, well, thanks to Corbett, I think he was the first one who was like, Hey, is anybody noticing anything interesting about this? Like two weeks to flatten the curve, stay at home to flatten the curve, um, horizontal policing that's going on. Uh, and that escalated very, very sharply and quickly. So, yeah, I think everything is already in place. Like who are the good, smart, responsible people and who are the bad, disobedient, prolong the crisis people. Uh, and that to me means that uh, it will probably move more in the the climate change direction from here, even if there is some some respite. Again, a lot of speculation. Uh, and maybe we get cyber pandemic, too. You know, well, and the other thing, too, is they don't have to completely abandon the, the covid narrative. You're right. Um, yeah. They can, they can just go in that the as seat. like an. Yeah, yeah, it can be like an ever present specter because, uh, again, there's that certain percentage of the population that has now had their brains permanently warped by this narrative. So anytime you bring up the boogeyman of covid, it's going to spark an emotional reaction in them. And also, also we're going to oh, get. Go well, we're going to assuming we get the reprieve, I'm looking at England as sort of an example of the reprieve that potentially will come our way. Um, but like, let's look at England now that they remove the legal stipulations regarding masks and vaccines and all that stuff. Now the real test begins. Now we're going to see who does it voluntarily. Now we're going to get to see how much it's been ingrained into the actual culture. Because you know not everybody's going to take the mask off. You know people are going to get mad at people who take their masks off, regardless of what the law says now. That's the real test, I think. And so let's bring it over here. If we have a reprieve like that, maybe we're going to be able to reach out to people because COVID isn't so much in the emotional forefront in the news but there are always going to be those people who are still caught in, you know, summertime 2020 mindset, COVID. Like this is still with us. And when the next thing does come, maybe it's another COVID variant or maybe it's an environmental thing. They're already going to have that programming in place to say, like, whereas here in March of 2020, we were kind of starting at zero. We had to build up to this state that we're at now. They're going to have the program ready to go. We'll just be able to kick back into high gear and then plus, like if we just go with the COVID narrative for a minute, all of those of us who decided voluntarily to shirk what had once been law, those of us who are not wearing masks when it's like, let's say we're allowed not to. Well, now it's really going to be easy to point to those of us who didn't culturally adapt. So that could be a potential way in which they get us. And of course, it's really easy for these sorts of people to make a, to draw a very direct line between people who tend to be against the COVID narrative and people who you can classify as climate change deniers. And hey, don't you remember that when China locked down, their pollution rate went down? Don't you want that? Isn't that good? So like there are so many lines that we can draw that would be that would cast a really wide net for those of us who would no longer choose or have at this point long chosen not to adopt to the COVID and what sacrifice is sort of critical thinking. I, I, the, I'm trying to think of the universal here and it's sort of like the issue of heuristics because what Brett's pointing out is very pernicious because it's also the fact that we're sort of engaging with the idea of a mentality of always being correct, just like the inconvenient truth people at one point believed they were completely correct about the climate change narrative. And if we don't maintain a form of healthy skepticism, even with stuff that we want to necessarily, like we have a certain confirmation bias towards, then we're, we can fall into that same trap and they can actually use that against us as we use it against like the inconvenient truth type of like the, the climate change sort of the narrative and mentality. And this all represents elements of the Dunning-Kruger effect. 
obviously. Uh, the, the, the less you know about a subject, the more you think you're sort of an expert or have sophisticated knowledge about it. The more you know about a subject, the more nuanced you know of these, the complexities inherent and the less uh, surety or assuredness you have around that subject. And so it's like, I just think going back, it's, we're back to this sort of heuristics thing where like these victory laps are a false sense of security. If that's the, not the right, I don't even know that's the, the right concept, but it's just the idea that like we're reinforcing our own biases that may be actually correct and most likely are because like oftentimes I feel like we're citing evidence and uh, studies more so than the other side. But at the same point, that can also be weaponized against us because then we're, we can make the assumption that we're kind of always right. Um, and they can use that potentially against us just as we use it, like I said, against the, the climate change people, man, that's, I didn't put that together, but that sort of mentality creates in sort of egregore or egregore, this idea of this like manifested sort of corporeal thought or a, an incorporeal thought that becomes sort of like a manifested thought form, a disembodied thought form that stands as like sort of a, a God or some sort of like, um, apotheosized concept over the population that manifests it in a collective action. So it's like, it's the difference between the individual and the collective action. And to James's point that speak, you know, the law may change, but that egregor actually manifests in the form of political power, which is of course backed up ultimately by violence. So they can choose to give us a reprieve, but ultimately what are we, what are we assenting to in that process? They're the ones who have the power to give us a reprieve. And a great example of what this actually looks like is, If you watch that video of Boris Johnson announcing that they're going to put an end to all of their laws and stuff, I mean, just listen to the muffled, impotent groans of approval coming from the people behind (laughs) him as their dear leader tells them that they're now allowed to move through their own communities. That they get back their freedoms they never had the right to take away in the first place. And they don't have a constitutional republic. And it's fundamentally a Hegelian sort of model. Well said. Yeah, there's there's one more part of this, like these narrative templates and layers. And, you know, James pointed out or Danny and James pointed out, I think that the covid narrative is here to stay. And let's remember that this was whatever's next. Right. It's it's layered on top of this. But the covid narrative itself was layered on top of 9-11. Right. So uh, Rich and I would talk ago, about that all the time. It started yeah. with 9-11. Yeah. And actually before that, but 9-11 was really the traumatic situation that is sort of ingrained, I think, in everyone's mind that lived through that day that precipitated to the experience we're having today. Absolutely. So the 20th century was called by Adam Curtis, the century of the self. And the 21st century is definitely going to be the century of the safe. And it it began Mm. with that. Right. And a friend of mine that I do another podcast with a comedy podcast, he's a car guy. And believe me, uh, the whole safetyism thing is not good for car guys. And he points out all the time that people obsessed with safety are the most dangerous people, ironically, in the entire world. Or the obsession with safety is the most dangerous thing uh, because safety trumps everything, right? Like keeping people safe, no matter what anybody says, right? Barry Weiss and Bill Maher can say anything on there. They can make the best, most cogent points about the costs of this. And then it can be turned right around by CNN or The View. I saw that on uh, No Agenda podcast. They're playing clips from The View about how flippant Bill Maher is being while while people are dying. And then they even go on to say something like, doesn't he remember like, yeah, this is the way the world is now. Sorry, buddy. Like we still take our shoes off at the airport. 
because of 9-11. And that's the way the world is. Like, that's totally fine. And there's nothing to even think about there. So 9-11 creates this, like, safetyism wins every argument, right? Nothing is more important. Safety first, not safety second or safety third, safety first. And notice what that is. I can take this all the way back to Jeremy Bentham and utilitarian ethics. The greatest good for the greatest number. We're just back to utilitarian ethics. It's a sacrifice of the individual for a greater collective good, which itself is contrived. And it's a, you know, essentially has to be part of a larger narrative that then has to be justified in some capacity through data, through manipulation of the narrative, through, you know, whatever means necessary to fulfill the prophecy that's already been prescripted or prescribed on an unwitting populace. Well, now we've got Bentham's ultimate dream come true with our technology. If we have the utilitarian agenda, uh, or rather, if we have the utilitarian ends, what we need is a truly panopticontic means. And we've got it now with the form of, you know, phones in everyone's pocket and cameras on every computer and every street corner, et cetera, et cetera. Think of the predictive programming. What was it, The Dark Knight, where Batman uses the triangulation of the cell phones to tear down the forest, to burn down the forest so they could catch the you know, catch the Joker in this capacity, but it's like, you know, and of course, Morgan Freeman comes in and is like, no, 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 this is, this is wrong on so many levels. And he's like, yeah, I know, but it's for the greater good. Mm-hmm. It's for the greater good. I have to do this. to the Joker. So, yeah, and we, we all happens. cheered when he did that. Right. Cause, Cause the good guy got the bad guy and everyone lived happily ever after and all that good stuff. It. So it's about 12. What I want to do here is, if you guys want to do one more clip, I'm down for one very short clip, if that's okay with you guys. This would just be the Brett and Heather um, talking about the Fauci. We have a little discussion around the, the, the issue of uh, <clears throat> these uh, unelected rulers, as Rich likes to call them. Uh, is everyone cool with that? One more. It's like through two or three minutes, and then we'll have a discussion, and then we'll, we'll sort of disband this, and I'll continue on. But uh, all works for me. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, let's do um, it. This will be LD. This will be, it's about three minute clip. It's the second one down on the round table videos. Brett has got my thoughts. She hasn't got it. The uh, J. Edgar Hoover comparison. Yeah. All right. I've wondered why Trump didn't fire Fauci in the insight as to why he didn't. I don't think he's fireable somehow. Uh, I agree. And actually I heard somebody else. I I was thinking of, um, calling him the J. Edgar Hoover of public health. And I heard somebody Someone else, else did that exact phrase yeah. this week. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I do think that there is some, and you know, in J. Edgar Hoover's case, we know why more or less, mm-hmm. which is that because of his position at the FBI, he had enough goods on enough people that nobody wanted, you know, to, to go after him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That can't be quite right with Fauci. It's not the same position. On the other hand, right. we do know a lot about, his the way he has ruled um, public health and related fields through uh, and basically science. so much of science. Yeah, I mean, it, it obviously doesn't extend beyond a certain level, but but there's a there's an ability to cause your <coughs> fortunes to reverse, right? If you're on Fauci's good side, the money can flow and you can start rising in your field. If you're run afoul of him, it can be the end of your career. And so I think the answer is Heather and I know nothing about the detail of how that worked, but yep. imagine for a second, a system in which somebody has amassed so much power. And remember he did turn down, I believe the, 
attempt to promote him to NIH. Head. Yes, that is. Um, yeah, uh, Bush too, I believe, tried to tried to promote him to NIH, and he uh, politely declined. And I think basically his his fiefdom he had he had and retains more power. Uh, as head of the NIAID than he would have as NIH. And, you know, Collins, who I guess is stepping or has already stepped down, is nominally his boss, but not really. Right. So I, really. Think, I think the thing is, why would somebody turn down that promotion? And the answer is yeah. um, because I have built all of these things into this position that allow me carte blanche. Right. And why would I start over? Or, yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. Or just have to oversee more. Like, why? He's not a bureaucrat. He's a lot of things, but I don't think he's actually a bureaucrat. I don't know what he is. Um, Maybe that's not the right formulation. I don't know. I'm I'm thinking about. It. I, yeah. I I think I think it, you know putting him in a a known category is bound to be a, a mistake. Yeah, he's special. He's special. Nope. Oh, there we go. He's special. Is Fauci fireable? Is that like licking doorknobs special? <laughs> or toilet seats on airplanes? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, uh, he's like the I, ultimate know, bureaucrat. Well, go ahead. Well, I don't. That's the thing is, I think Heather was was on to something there. I don't know that he is necessarily your run of the mill, you know, textbook definition of a bureaucrat. Mm-hmm. He, he has more power in, than that. Right. And think he's been in that position for decades. Yes. So, like, there there have to have been other opportunities for him to have been removed from that spot for you know, previous uh, egregious actions that he's taken, yet he's still there. And he wields uh, a tremendous amount of power from that position. So what exactly is he? Yeah, that's well said. I mean, most bureaucrats don't have the ability to control millions, if not billions of dollars of funding to research scientists. And he does to the NIAID. I don't even think Collins has a Collins is to sort of over is supposed to be the sort of oversight to someone like a Fauci, but Fauci's the one conducting it. You know, we might have to run it past Collins, but ultimately he's the one who gets to say where it goes and where it doesn't. You know, bureaucrats can only dream of that level of power. Usually they have to go through some sort of legislative process. Right. It's like on paper, I guess you would have to say that Fauci technically is a bureaucrat, but only insofar as he's an unelected administrator who's been tasked with dealing with taxpayer money. But, you know, fine, that's a definitional thing. But when you really get down into the mud of what he does, you have to ask yourself, why does this guy make more money than his boss? You know, that's an interesting question to ask. And also, we know that he's an ambitious man. I mean, anybody who's 80 years old and has decided to helm a ship this large has to be ambitious. Say what you want about him. And there was a um, and doesn't want to retire, doesn't want to retire. I was just going to say he was asked, like, are you ever going to retire? What was it? Burks or whoever? She said that she wanted to retire. And Mm -hmm. he said, no, no, it never entered into my head. So clearly he's a man with you know energy. And yet, why would he decide to stop at that particular level rather than climb all the way to the top as he could have? 
it, it, it's interesting. It's, it makes you want to investigate what specific relationships exist with him in that particular role. And why is it that those relationships couldn't have been maintained had he taken another job? Like something about that job is important to him. And I wonder what that is. Mm-hmm. It might not be the job specifically. So if we're going to use Hoover as the model with, with the FBI, it's your longevity in that job. And like, Maybe like the Peter Principle sort of thing. Do you know yeah. about that principle? W- refresh my memory. Peter Principle is sort of like you will um, uh, be promoted to a point of being incompetent within an organization. Uh, like essentially like organizations will promote internally to the point where you reach a, a point where you're incompetent in that position because it's outside the scope of your knowledge or ability to actually conduct um, be able to do the job that's requested. I mean, I'm sort of loosely that's the general principle. Um, it's sort of loosely applying it to, to Fauci situation. Can you, can you make a, can you make a direct connection to, to Fauci in this case? I don't think so because I mean, how, why, how would he know, like know about that principle? Like, does he know something about being an IH head that would make him be outside the scope of his ability to do his job? I don't think that's the case. But in the case of J. Edgar Hoover and certain positions in the FBI, it could make that. But yeah, so what I what I think it is is it's it, it's not anything magical about that specific position. It's the fact that his longevity in position in a single position um, comes with an increasing knowledge of how to game it for maximum like power. I agree there. You know, so and and then again, that's Hoover as as the model, right? So. Yeah, it's it's certainly a different field where Hoover is, you know, collecting information on people and he's got dirt on everybody and that allows him to maintain his power that way. But in ways that we might not understand, um, Fauci's tenure in this specific position has definitely helped him set up, you know, understand all the levers and the wires and the pulleys that that come with this for uh, maximum leverage and maximum power. So like, I think it's sort of like somewhere else. Yeah. Right. Like with an engineer, why remove yourself from the machine you built? Like, you know, all the intricacies of the machine you built, why remove yourself from that? Especially of, especially that machine gives you a sense of the ability to manipulate your reality in a way that being sort of someone that oversees the person manipulating the machine has. I know it's right. sort of a loose analogy, but that's sort of what's going on here. He knows how the pharmaceutical companies work. He knows how the, the grant funding works, so that the dis- distribution of taxpayer funds. He knows how to distribute that. He knows how to seemingly manipulate that, much like Hoover did with uh, people within the FBI, informants within the FBI. Same thing here. He, we just had it on the show. I just had this on the show card last week. It was like a, a major element that, he, you know, coincidentally, he funneled many times over money to research scientists for all just an epidemiologist that questioned the, the lab leak hypothesis, uh, right around the same, right, like right after they questioned it and they did so many times over what the initial grant was requested for. So it's like the fact that he has that. So we have actual examples of this, him doing this. Now we also, because of RFK's book, we have examples of him doing this in the eighties with AIDS and specific, uh, therapeutics with AIDS. So it's like, you know, and why remove yourself? Because you actually have, oddly enough, more power in that position, even if, you know, um, which is 
it's strange to think about. You know, we think of Francis Collins as being a sort of it's nothing more than a figurehead in, in, in this sort of situation. But it's it speaks to perhaps that ambition again. The fact yeah. that he would choose rather to take a position that's a little closer to the ground because that's where the real action is. Uh, so it, it's just interesting to me, and I think it would be an, a worthwhile endeavor, perhaps just on my own, to try and figure out exactly what it is that the director of the NIA, NIAID, what are the things that he actually has to do on a day-to-day basis, and what are the relationships that have been brokered over the years? I mean, he's been in there, what, 40 years, 50 years? So what sort of he helped to find, I think, that unique organization within the NIH. I think he he was like, okay. one of, I, I, I might be incorrect, about that. I'm pretty sure he's one of like those sort of the founding fathers of that specific organization, which is like underneath the umbrella of the NIH. And that happened okay. at a time t- in the late 70s, early 80s, um, because, you know, they're, they're course, there wasn't a, any issue with infectious diseases. They had to sort of, again, we're back to the self-fulfilling prophecy. If, and then if he all was of a sudden, a, you know, if he was more of an architect of it, then that makes even more sense why he would want to kind of stay with his baby. Uh, that does make sense. And especially in such a position as that, he probably made some more long-term relationships, well, particularly, yeah. you know, how do you get your money, how, et cetera. And as far as my understanding of that position goes, it's simply that he's basically the guy who gets to decide what gets funded and what doesn't. And that's a really interesting position in that, you know, it's kind of like the trolley problem where, you know, either you kill this group of people or you kill that group of people. And Fauci is kind of the guy operating the railroad switch in that he chooses what gets funded and what doesn't. And I I don't know what, I don't know. I don't know what to say more on that because I don't know I haven't read. Okay, so I'm wrong book, about so. this. I'm wrong about this. So it started as far back mid 1948. NIH became the National Institutes of Health with the creation of four new institutes. Um, Biologics, yeah, blah blah blah. Uh, Congress changed the name of the National Biological Institute to National Institute of. So originally it was called the National Biological Institute, Microbiological Institute, and then it became the NIAID to reflect the inclusion of. Maybe what I'm misunderstanding is he he gained control of it at a time when it was largely oh i remember in the 80s reagan was considering shutting down these organizations because they were not really useful there wasn't essentially epidemics of allergy or infectious diseases and a lot of government money was being sent there of course as the reaganomics sort of situation sort of trying to curtail sort of government spending and so they had to find this is what this sort of the aids conspiracy people come in with is like well they had to find again, the self-fulfilling prophecy of being able to maintain and keep this open. That's, I think, the connection. That's where I got it wrong. But it started, that's interesting, that it started as the Microbiological Institute, NMI. Then it was changed in 55 to the NIAID. With, with, interestingly enough, a focus on immunology research, specifically. So, The other question, too, about the NIH <clears throat> And it's oversight of Fauci. So are the people who lead it more ceremonial? Like Francis Collins has this history with uh, genome research. So is that is that a prestige position? And as as a leader, you're you're kind of toothless. Right. So that would require more research like. You know, the guy Collins was preceded by uh, Reynard um, Kington. Uh, and now the the successor was just the deputy director. And mm-hmm. uh, it says, let's see, 
is an American dentist and biomedical scientist serving as the acting director of the National Institutes of Health. Health. It's almost like a uh, coach getting fired in the NFL and they just promote, you know, like the well, offensive coordinator. Well, that is that the other thing is, does Fauci have a legacy of weak bosses, right? Mm. You know, so so or those bosses purposely put there so he can do what by was a revolving door of pharmaceutical influence, making sure that the Fauci, who seems to be the perfect plant for big pharma, maintains mm -hmm. his position by having incompetent bosses to some extent, quote unquote. Yeah. I mean, that's these are all open questions. No idea. But yeah. Yeah. So just to be completely open about this, this is this is a question that I'm raising that would require a lot more research is that it is there a lineage of people running the NIH as Fauci's boss who are basically soft or toothless or in in ceremonial or prestige positions that basically allows Fauci to operate because uh, because all they've done since Collins retired was put in the deputy director as the director. Correct. So I no know. one really knew, knew who Francis Collins was before we've heard about Fauci. Fauci was conducting all this. Now, yes, he's interfacing with Collins. They're talking about how to take down the virology or the, uh, the like Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford and the, the, um, the other two epidemiologists started the Great Barrington Declaration. It's like, how do we stop this or how do we stop the lab leak? You know, you know, they're, they're talking privately in emails about taking down legitimate scientists that have a evidence that presents contrary sort of narratives to what they're trying to promote. And so there's they obviously have a shared vision. There's a solidarity around what they're trying to attempt to do, which is yeah, terrifying. And correct me if I'm wrong in, in thinking this, but it occurred to me in reading through those emails between uh, Collins and Fauci uh, about the Great Barrington Declaration uh, that it was actually Collins was looking to Fauci to be the one to actually do something about it. You got he it. was he was basically like bringing it to Fauci like, hey, we've got this problem that needs to be fixed and, and I'm, I'm presenting it to you to get that fixing done. And this goes along with what Daniel's saying. Then. There's a certain psychology almost about a mentality, if you will, about um, Fauci to be 80 years old and still be on the fight, still be sitting there and uh, getting sort of excoriated by someone like Rand Paul and others that have questioned him on, you know, lab manipulated viruses and gain of function technology. Then he sits there and it wasn't just um, him stating the Burks that he's not going to retire. Rand Paul said, you should, you should resign based on these allegations. It's like, absolutely not. I'll be here. You know, he's like 80 or 81. He has over $10 million because, you know, he makes 400,000 or is it 800? I forget which one's pension and one's salary. I think it's over 400,000 a year. And then he has a pension of like something like six or 800,000. It's something absurd. Yeah, and, he's uh, grossly overpaid for a public official. Yeah. His I, wife I being a bio. Just the best way to put it. Yeah. Like there's so many con weird conflicts of interest too, and the sort of like sort of weird cauldron of nepotism, if you will. I don't even know if it's called that. I don't know if it's quite the right term, but close enough. It's weird. A lot of open-ended questions. A lot of research needs to be done because it doesn't make a lot of sense. What exactly is the NIH head? What exactly is Anthony Fauci able to do? What exactly happened when he became head of the NIAID in '84? What, what, what state was that organization in the NIAID? What was it being threatened? I mean, there's so many questions. So. 
The but, big one, though, is, as they open that video with, is like, do we see a potential uh, like throwing Fauci to the wolves? Is that in the cards or what? Because, you know, they do sacrifice their own sometime for the public consumption. I don't know. I really don't have an answer to that one. I've thought about that a lot because we we have it on the show all the time. Right. I don't think they have a replacement. Like if I'm going down the more conspiratorial side, it's like, well, if he's the big pharma's plant, if you will, they don't really have a reasonable replacement. Maybe Rochelle Lewinsky is sort of being groomed no. for that position. But I know, I know. She's <laughs> no. not good enough though. She's she's not a, she's not sophisticated enough for the Reddit. She's not a sophist. But she's not a good sophist. She's a sophist, she's not a good sophist. So she's she allows actual truth to permeate uh from her uh food and sound hole. So, you know, it's just <laughs> I don't I don't think they have a replacement. I really don't. And so in this capacity, and also to your point, Daniel, the mentality, the type of psychology of an Anthony Fauci makes it so he doesn't want to even step down. At some point, though, this could be a grand sacrifice because if the Republicans take back the House and the Senate, I mean, you saw, you know, Jim Jordan and uh, Ron Johnson and the whole contingent of them are ready to bring charges or at least indict him with, uh, you know, some form of conspiracy. I don't know what it'll be on, but it'll be. And I'm not saying anything will come of that, but it certainly will be a a, a charade. It'll be some sort of, uh, you know, political dog and pony show that'll emerge from it. And it'll be interesting to see what happens if they bring in, if that actually manifests in that capacity. I don't know. Uh, that's a, a very curious thought, Tony, because um, I, I think it was on Friday. Uh, Tim Cast had uh, a guest on who was a former uh, congressman. And one of the things that he pointed out is when the the party that uh, that you're with is in the um, is without power in Congress. Um, that's when you get to make all of the boisterous claims and and do the big shows, all the big, uh, you know, uh, performative actions like the Democrats uh, for the, during Trump. Yeah, correct, correct. But then when you actually manage to regain the power because you know the the public has gotten fed up with what the other party was doing and all their corruption and yada yada yada, um, nothing ever comes of, of those big performative actions that you were doing when you were in the minority. That's just how the game is played. Yeah. So it's just to placate your, your constituency. Mm-hmm. A conservative is a Republican who is out of power. <laughs> well said. A Republican <laughs> in power is a Democrat. <laughs> or a progressive. Yeah. Of some mentality. Just a lesser lesser spectrum progressive a neo prog the neo prog yeah Yeah, there we go we gotta do a whole deep dive on that sometime but with that this has been an incredible success tonight we're actually at 12 20 so at this point i'll probably call it there but i can't thank you guys enough this was way beyond what i imagined it would be um the discussion we were able to generate was just absolutely fantastic and i hope it gave some insight into some of the complexity about uh just ideas sharing of like mind, different ideas around complex topics related to what's going on with the COVID narrative or protests or, you know, Fauci, whatever we commented on tonight and how it can extrapolate out to so many different areas. I mean, I think we approach psychology and philosophy and politics and history, and we were just 
you know, the tentacles reach into all these different places because it's all sort of interconnected with the human condition. So with that, um, any last thoughts? And uh, why don't we give actually a couple last, well, first of all, let me say, anyone have any last thoughts or comments they want to make about anything related to what we discussed tonight? Uh, just real quick. Thank you so much, Tony, for having me on. And thanks to James and Daniel for being here as well and sharing ideas. And uh, of course, thanks to uh, Rich and LD and everybody else who's involved uh, behind the scenes. This was great to get to be on uh, GTW. And um, the only thing that I had that we didn't get to was the course I took on being a vaccine ambassador from Johns Hopkins University. But I have a feeling that that's going to be evergreen. And uh, I'd be happy to come back anytime and tell you all about what I have learned. Actually, I would love that. We wanted to start the show off tonight with that, but I totally, we just got started until it's it's not, I mean, it's not fantastic. And, uh, is it long? Is it long? It's, it's about a two hour course. And I would describe it as eerily bad. If, if these are the thought leaders (laughs) on the other side, yeah. Um, you know, it's, it was disappointing. I, w- I was hoping it would be like a little bit higher hanging fruit to to go yeah. after, but um, there's probably. Find... Go go ahead. Ahead. I was going to say maybe we can find something alongside that, like do that and see if there's other courses similar to that to see what can be, um, what we could comment on there. I don't know. I'm just thinking out loud because uh, I don't know. If, you know, I haven't found out yet whether Rich will be back next week yet. But and I don't know if what your schedule is like. But there might be the possibility to come on for an hour and discuss that. I would do that, uh-huh. and the way I'd like to do it is I'd actually like to put it up against instead of other course material, I'd mm-hmm. like to put it up against a Family Guy PSA <laughs> that Seth MacFarlane made when he was mad at the other people. At Even Fox. better. Yeah, and I, I found that that was like the best, like one for one comparison of like the quality of information. And wow, I, spoiler alert! I think Family Guy edges out Johns Hopkins as far as like presenting information in a coherent way. So two hundred one be damned. Uh, <laughs> but that's it for me. My website schoolsucksproject.com, and you can learn about the university and my other projects there. Um, the, the recommendations for GTW listeners, uh, the John Taylor Gatto video series, uh, the series that I did primarily with my friend, Daryl Becker, but also with Tony called, uh, at the end, uh, this is a test where we, you know, did some not seeing eye to eye on this whole thing. Uh, Daryl and I, uh, had a lot of conversations through the early stage of the pandemic, trying to understand what was going on with various aspects of it. And uh, just as far as like narrative and media literacy, I do a series with uh, my friend Nathan Frazier, who's a copy uh, writer and a marketer. And the name of the series is Emotional Manipulators for Hire. And we talk about how through marketing in his case and through teaching in my case, we basically wrote programs and installed them into the heads of people. And uh, it's a lot about how to identify what those programs are and how to unwrite them and discard them and put in new and better and uh, more beneficial programs. Uh, so that's called Emotional Manipulators for Hire. You can find it through School Sucks. And it also is a nice kind of time capsule through the pandemic of like, you know, we're, we're using some kind of current event as like the, the stimuli 
and riffing on that and trying to build a lesson out of like whatever was happening at the time. So uh, again, thank every thank you so much to to everybody, and uh, I'd love to come back. Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, talk about it in the background because maybe next week, depending on Rich doesn't come back, we'll do that, and I might have uh, Senna on to do some deep dives next week as well. So I'm already thinking, but that's only I have to talk to see what's going on with Rich. For those that are interested, before I let you guys go, Richard Grove is supposed to be back in studio next Sunday, but they are currently uh, he and his family are in Florida, and. Um, they uh it all depending dependent on the northeastern weather which has been very brutal recently especially up in connecticut where they live uh big snowstorms big problems so i don't know what their schedule looks like originally they told me they'd be back by that sunday i have a feeling that they might get be pulling into the driveway <laughs> conveniently when the we are getting ready to roll gtw in that capacity but i'm not sure they might be leaving earlier i i have to talk with them and see but richard grove sh- might be back next sunday and if not for sure uh on this which should be the 14th you will be back february 14th so if not brett you're absolutely i'd like to have you come back on and talk about that and i might have senna come on do some deep dives i want to get you guys to do your plugs uh as well james your blog and where people can find you in liberty radio and all that stuff one more time Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, first I just want to say, um, thank you to, to everyone tonight for uh, being so gracious. It was awesome, uh, to get to meet Brett and Daniel and, uh, spend a, a couple hours on a Sunday night, uh, just kind of batting ideas around and trying to answer some of these, uh, pressing questions that uh, we find in our lives these days. Um, I would absolutely love to do this again at some point. Uh, had so much fun. Thank you guys for that. Uh, and of course, you know, Tony and LD, uh, but I thank you guys every week on Liberty radio anyway. Uh, but yeah, you can find my stuff, um, on my website, manufacturingreality.org. I put a lot of my writing up there. Uh, I'm also, uh, writing for, uh, Grand Theft World. Uh, and the easiest way to, uh, find that is, uh, on the Grand Theft World homepage. Uh, just scroll down below the most recent uh, podcast episodes and you'll find GTW reports. Uh, and that's pretty much uh, all the stuff uh, that I produce. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the big thing that uh, I'm most proud of is uh, Grand Theft World Liberty Radio. And uh, we come at you uh, every week. Uh, we record on Monday nights. We publish on Tuesdays. Uh, and we try to bring you three hours uh, every week of uh, some of the best stories. Um, hopefully we uh, inject it with a, a good amount of humor because uh, God knows that uh, we need more of that these days. Uh, but we also bring the uh, the best and uh, usually the newest uh, liberty oriented uh, music. So uh, everything from Blooded the Brave to uh, Diesel Automatic to folks that I can't even think of right now. Uh, we usually try to get at least 10 to 12 songs a week uh, onto the show uh, of, you know, folks that um, that are making music nowadays that uh, that we can believe in, because unfortunately, uh, a lot of what transpired with uh, COVID clown world is that the people that we used to look up to in the entertainment uh, industry, they kind of revealed uh, their true colors uh, through the course of all this. Uh, so I imagine a lot of us have had heroes that have fallen by the wayside in uh, in the last two years. Uh, but that's kind of what we try to do at Liberty Radio is uh, is fill that gap and uh, point you in the direction uh, of maybe some better people 
uh, to start putting your uh, your faith and your belief into as far as that's concerned. Uh, but you can find us on Odyssey, Float, uh, Podcast Addict, Pocket Casts, and uh, Reason FM. And as long as you guys keep showing up and listening to it, we'll keep doing it. Awesome. And obviously, you guys are all welcome back on the show anytime. This is, like I said, been way beyond my expectations. The, the, the conversation we were able to generate was exactly... It's not only what I was looking for, but exceeded my expectations. I knew I had sort of a suspicion that it would, but I didn't know how it would go because you guys had never really... Brett and Daniel and I, we all know each other, but James, I was sort of throwing you into the mix. It was perfect. It was. It really went really well. And I, I can't thank you guys enough for participating tonight. And Daniel, I want you to get to uh, plug your uh, website, your book, and your podcast all in one. Absolutely. All of my stuff is called Story of Nowhere. The book the podcast and the website. So everything you could find at storyofnowhere.com. And basically throughout those, the book and the podcast being the main two focuses of my work, basically I'm studying the various forms of utopian imagery and ideology and the networks of power which promote and sustain them. So that takes me all throughout history, covering a wide berth of philosophies. So it's a very eclectic presentation of things that I think those of us that come from the sort of tragedy and hope community could benefit from. And uh, you'll notice that there's, there's some overlapping of material, but I of course bring my own kind of my own zhuzh to the whole situation, you know? Um, in fact, I recently figured, uh, finished a series that I think would be of particular interest to people who are around for the tragedy and hope stuff. Uh, it's a three part series on the origins of the British empire. And I kind of get into the strange, very strange founding myths uh, that surrounded the British Empire back in, let's say, the early 16th century. So I kind of break down into like the history of imperialism and modernism and all that stuff. So I recommend everyone check that out. I'm sure you'll like it considering you're in this crowd. Um, but also, if you go to storyofnowhere.com, you can find a show that I used to do with Brett. And uh, we also brought on Kevin Cole towards the end of it called In Pursuit of Utopia. That's a good one to listen to. You can find some of those episodes there. I've also got a, a video show that my wife and I were doing for a while last year in which we review issues of the Council on Foreign Relations official journal, Foreign Affairs. So if you want to get us, we we alternated. We would do the current issue and then we do a historical issue each episode. So you can get a little bit of historical context for global relations and then also the sort of current event updates and stuff. So that's also something worth checking out that we did. And I've got a new show coming out as well, uh, in which we, a friend of mine and I review utopian themed movies. So yeah. that's going to be fun. Be fun. Uh, but yeah, all of that's going to be available at storyofnowhere.com. And I really, I hope that, I know Tony's been saying this was a very productive conversation and I agree. It was great to meet you, James. And it was great to talk to you again, Brett and Tony. I thought it was a very lucrative conversation and anytime I could make it and anytime you'd be willing to have me, I'd love to come back on. It was a wonderful Yeah, We got to do this again. We got to do this again. I can't, I'll, I need to uh, just lay it out there for the audience. I vouch for your CFR present. I mean, all your presentations have been brilliant. I've listened to podcasts in the past, specifically around the utopian idealism um, and being sort of into classical philosophy and history and stuff of that nature. I can't help but you we we certainly share kinship we'll have to talk in the background more about that but uh you did a private presentation for the autonomy community back in early 2020 when the pandemic first started showing a chain of sort of a 
a causal chain of a, perni- a pernicious, ominous chain of CFR articles that were being sort of thrown out there. And uh, not only the titles of the, the journals themselves, but then the like articles within the journals that were showing a very sort of interesting pattern that they were sorting that they were promoting back then. Brett alluded to it a little bit, like, you know, China, you know, welding people under their house and had to do a lot with West democracy's bad, China good, China managed the pandemic. The West didn't. And I remember it, I forget the individual, but when I was helping, when I was living with uh, Rich and his wife, they would um so it was an individual part of the Trajan Hill community actually subscribed to the foreign affairs. Uh, magazine. And so we get an actual uh, magazine every month whenever they did their publishing cycle. And uh, that was interesting to, uh, to you know, uh, peruse through because you get, as Rich would always say to me, it's like, oh, this is what's coming for the future. So it's a good sort of like general overview of what the future is going to look like. And that CFR presentation you did was certainly on point, very poignant to their situation. So awesome work all you guys do such incredible work and i want to thank you guys again uh tonight for joining me this has been a huge success and i want to have you guys on back again soon whenever i essentially especially when rich is traveling let's try to uh, prioritize and see if we can work something out and do this again soon so um that might give more incentive for rich to take off which i don't want them necessarily to do but uh whenever that does happen no you guys will be the first ones i think about so much appreciated <laughs>